Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Filmcast, a podcast about movies. I am David Chen, and I'm also a Chinese character awkwardly inserted here for financing purposes. <laughs> Joining me today is Devendra Hardwar. I think we finally know who won in the battle between the Meg and Skyscraper. And there's no Skyscraper 2, is there, Ellis? <laughs> is there The Rock? <laughs> and Jeff Kanata. If there's one thing that movies have taught me, it's that if someone owns a fish tank, you do not trust them. <laughs> very, very true. Very true. Well, those are, of course, all vague and oblique references to the fact that today on the podcast, we're going to be reviewing Meg 2, The Trench. I guess they, they took out the the uh, from the the original title. You, know, you can't have two thes. The Meg. It's bad. You can't have yeah, two thes yeah. in the title, yeah. right? You, like, just, yeah. um, slide it, you just slide it forward there, you know? But here's it's the like thing. The the is like a shark, Dave. <laughs> it has to keep moving forward or it dies. It's true. It's so true. It's accurate. That is very accurate, Jeff. Thank you. But you know what? Here's the thing, though. Um, we received what I would describe as a boatload of feedback from people saying, hey, you chose the wrong movie to review about merciless sea creatures. <laughs> Merciless? Listen, okay. we don't know these things before <laughs> movies come out. Larger you know? than normal sea creatures. Mm, there <laughs> you go. Sea have creatures, yeah. <laughs> sea creatures that show their enemies no mercy. Uh, and so a lot With of people a said, hey. set of skills, including indeed. the Meg. A lot yeah. of people said, hey, we would love it if you reviewed Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem, the new animated film co-written by Seth Rogen, out in theaters this weekend as well. Good call. And we have heard the cry. The Cree de Coeur from our listeners and patrons <laughs> uh, and Slack film cast members. Uh, and so today, in addition to our review of Meg to the Trench, we're going to be doing a double review. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem followed by Meg to the Trench. It's going to be a packed episode, folks, and a lot of fun. So thanks to everyone who wrote in, you know, and, and as Devendra says, we're just we're, we're trying our best. A Ben Wheatley directed Meg yeah. movie? That sounds that, that pretty freaking wild. That idea is wild. That is why I think months ago we were like, we got to review the Meg. Yeah, I think that it, was a, a lot of yeah. Devendra going, we're definitely doing we're the definitely Meg definitely doing doing everybody. <laughs> I'm very enough, glad. Fair I enough. And, and yeah. you know, Mutant Mayhem, uh, who knows how good it uh, could have been. And I will right, say right. that the trailers, um, you know, the art, let's just say the art style is very specific, you know? And, yeah. uh, and I didn't know if it'd be something that was great. Of course, it is one of the best reviewed movies of the year. So uh, looking forward to diving into both movies with y'all. Uh, and so, yeah, full reviews of both movies coming up later today on the Filmcast. Speaking of which, I do want to mention, uh, we got, of course, some film news for you, followed by some what we've been watching. Uh, and this is the fourth weekend, I believe, ever in the history of the U.S. box office that has had four separate movies make over $25 million or more. Uh, those movies being Barbie, which just crossed the $1 billion club. Just like we all uh, predicted. Mm -hmm. Oppenheimer. <laughs> uh, I, I'm just going to say, Jeff, I think we had varying levels of predictions for how much money Barbie would make. But you're right. None of us got it right. Yeah. Um, Oppenheimer continues to do really well. Uh, and then, of course, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem, and also Meg to the Trench. Uh, so uh, the Barbenheimer impact continues. People are going back to theaters. And uh, that's just in time for there to be no new movies being made. It's so brutal, Jeff. Uh, it's so depressing to think about, you know? Uh, but yeah, no we're, no, we're not capitalizing on that momentum at all. Uh, uh, to some degree, movie going begets more movie going, you know? People see, yeah. go to movies, they see trailers for movies. Some of them do anyway. 
and then uh, and then they see uh, other movies down the line. And so it's yeah. it's a huge bummer that this fall is looking pretty sparse and might get sparser because of the uh, strike and specifically because the producers won't give in to the writers and actors reasonable demands. So anyway, um, just wanted to acknowledge, hey, a lot of people go to movies uh, these days, this summer, and that is lovely. Uh, I had a, another update I wanted to mention, which is that if you are a supporter of us, which you can, you can always become a supporter at patreon.com slash film podcast, support this show uh, and sign up for ad free episodes, exclusive after darks. And whenever we can, we try to give you a little early review uh, of a movie that we're uh, talking about. Uh, but this last week, uh, Patreon decided that they were going to start charging credit cards from Ireland instead of California. Uh, It was the first time they were doing that, and they did this in order to save on taxes or other costs. Uh, The problem with doing that and not really looking into it that much, unfortunately, is that uh, it it caused a lot of credit card charges to be wrongfully flagged for fraud that otherwise wouldn't have been. Uh, and a lot of Patreon, Patreon pages I know were hit really hard. You know, some <clears throat> Patreon pages lost 20, 30, 40% of their subscribers because of this Man. problem. How did uh, they not predict this? That is wild. Yeah. I think they probably predicted it, but it's like, you know, uh, they probably predicted some w- things they thought that could, be, taxes, could be mini- yeah. mitigated, uh, but sometimes <laughs> you can't know what a change's implications are until you deploy it for all your, you know, tens right, or thousands right. or millions of members. Um and so I do just want to mention, if you are a patron at patreon.com slash film podcast uh, or any other Patreon page, just check your uh, Patreon and uh, make sure that your your card went through, your charge went through, uh, because Patreon kind of messed it up. And I, I just as a FYI, like as of this moment, we still have received no communication from them about it. So yeah. uh, this is something that you will have to help us to manage uh, on our own. Uh, so uh, head on over to patreon.com slash film podcast. Check on all the pages you're a, a patron of. Make sure all the charges went through. And sorry for the inconvenience, but you know, this is uh, this is life in the Patreon fast lane. So uh, anyway, thanks to everyone who flagged that for us and people who resolved that issue on their own. And finally, uh, I wanted to mention another piece of film news before we get to what we've been watching. This is something that just broke a little bit before we started recording. And that is that William Friedkin passed away. The Man. director of movies such as The French Connection and The Exorcist, uh, and was active for many, many decades. One of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Uh, and this is really, really sad. Uh, I, I personally, you know, the the movie of his that spoke closest to me was Sorcerer, which is a movie we've reviewed here on the Filmcast. Yeah, uh, just an incredible movie. It, it's one of those movies that didn't get enough love in its time, uh, and now people have a chance to discover it decades later and, and realize how amazing it is. But Devinder Hardware, I know this one hit you particularly hard as well, right? I mean, pretty hard. Um, I, I have a distinct memory of watching The Exorcist way too early. And that is one <laughs> of those movies that is just like, man, it's like, can a movie contain pure evil, you know, and turn it into a horror movie? So, yeah, that movie just freaked me out for so long. But I've caught up on his other work, like The French Connection, Sorcerer. Love Sorcerer. Um, I also talked about Killer Joe, which was one of his last like uh, modern films, uh, a part of the Makanasans in 2011. That movie is pretty wild and uh, kind of lurid and gross, but also a, like a wild, wild ride. So I'd recommend checking it out. This is just truly sad. 
Jeff Kanata, any uh, favorite freaking works or is this a filmmaker who's resonated with you in the past? Sure. Yeah. I mean, he's one of the greats, right? Uh, French connection, mm-hmm. I think is, uh, an amazing movie. And, um, obviously he lived a very long life, 87, not, not, not too shabby, uh, to get to, um, still, still sad to see, but, um, left an incredible mark mm-hmm. on, uh, the, you know, the cinematic landscape. And yeah. I think, you know, so many, so many filmmakers cite Friedkin as a major influence. Um, he's, you know, clearly a master. And yeah. you, you see what, what he's able to do with in Exorcist with so little. Like, there's not a lot of special effects really right. going on. Right. I mean, there are a few things, obviously, spinning a head in circles, but whatever. <laughs> but, you know, the, it, it really is uh, the filmmaking itself that yeah. ramps up the tension and makes you terrified. It's also a movie that can take its time, like back when movies could be a little more methodically paced and The Sorcerer is very much the same way. And he just really, yeah, reveled in that stuff. If anybody wants to catch up on other stuff, Bug is also worth a watch. The Ashley Judd, Michael Shannon movie. That movie is a mind trip. Uh, agreed with everything you guys have said. Uh, Willem Freakin, hugely, influ- hugely influential, hugely culturally relevant. And uh it is some sad timing that this this fall there's going to be another Exorcist film, Exorcist mm-hmm. the Believer, coming out in October. At this point, um, who knows if it'll change? But uh, it's definitely somebody who left a massive, uh, massive impression, massive impact on the industry, uh, and we'll be very grateful for all the work that he's done. All right, folks, let's move on and let's talk about some what we've been watching this week. Jeff Kanata, hit us up with some of the stuff you've been watching this week. Well, I checked out a uh, a new film called The Beanie Bubble. Uh, this is a, uh, you know, another in this long line that seemed to be so in vogue lately of these films that are dramatizing um, sort of, how, we, how do we put it? Sort of financial corporate malfeasance. <laughs> right, right. Pe- people trying to make money, you know, I guess is what it would be, right? Like, yeah, you know. I, I mean, I guess, or, you know, I tried it, to say, I tried to call them rise and fall movies, but like not all of them have falls, you know? So, right. yeah. So there's a, a level of scandal that it seems to be pervasive in this new trend. You know, mm-hmm. it's like this sort of scandalous behind the scenes uh, tell all about the, you know, the unscrupulous behavior at the heart of these very famous uh, money-making schemes. Um, so there's, you know, a, a lot of these have focused on, you know, tech startups and stuff like that. And we've talked about a, a whole bunch of them. This is obviously focusing on that weird period of time that I lived through. I know you guys lived through as well. When uh, tiny little stuffed animals... <laughs> became an investment for people which sure. listen the proto last... uh web three you know yeah yeah i'm sure. the last <laughs> person to uh cast aspersions because uh i literally would you know i bought multiple issues of comic books one to read one to hold on to to sell and put my kids through college not a great idea not a great plan it turns out i just basically funneled money into the 90s comic book companies um and you know helped cause a a collapse of that industry so you know uh glass houses is what i'm saying i'm not gonna throw stones here but um i think we all if you lived through that time the the term beanie baby conjures a very odd set of behaviors where people were uh trampling each other in stores and there was a it was it was ebay was like had really become a thing at that time and for the first time and 
uh, you know, people were selling these things on e eBay for profit. And it just, it was a weird, it was a weird time, guys. It was the 90s. I don't know. Anyway, uh, this is the behind the scenes of the Thai Corporation. And more specifically, uh, Ty himself in this film played by Zach Galifianakis, beardless, almost unrecognizable beardless. Uh, it's got a really stellar cast. Uh, Sarah Snook is in it. Elizabeth Banks. Uh, there's a lot of uh, really fantastic uh, actors in this. And this movie is way more complex than it needs to be, in my opinion. It uh -huh. is... It is. Have you seen it too, Dave? I haven't. I was curious to hear your your review will dictate whether I see it. So be tread carefully, I, Jeff. I enjoyed watching. This is on Apple TV Plus. I enjoyed watching it, but I do believe that it is uh, it is taken a bigger swing than it needs to. Basically, the movie is it uses the beanie bubble, the beanie baby craze, as a backdrop upon which to, to talk about the founder of, of the, or the co-founder of the Thai corporation, the company behind the stuffed animal craze, uh, and how he is basically a terrible human being who was a womanizer. And, and so he has these multiple uh, relationships that are unhealthy and, and kind of, um, uh, he takes advantage of, of, very smart women uh, and kind of you, uh, takes all the credit from them for things that they were part of, but he does it in two different time periods. And the movie is constantly switching back and forth between those time periods, almost like uh, the last dance does, you know, with the Michael Jordan, uh, Chicago bulls documentary where it's sliding across this timeline back and forth to show you like, you know, two different time periods. The movie does, very similar things, a very similar conceit in this one. And I don't know if it benefits from it. <laughs> it just feels, it just feels like, Hey, I, I have a hard time placing. Cause here's the problem. The, 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 uh, the beanie baby movie does not need Oppenheimer levels of time <laughs> yeah. jumping. Or like Dunkirk <laughs> level of, of it's, it's, uh, it is, a little bewildering, at least it was to me. Perhaps more sophisticated viewers will not have a difficulty. I did. The, and, and it's not huge difficulty, but it's just like, why are we even doing this? The problem, I think, at the heart of this is that most of these stories is, hey, the Beanie Baby thing made them billions, right? Or the, I don't know, the uh, social network made them billions or whatever the thing is that we're looking at. So it's kind of this, as you said, rise and fall story. The difference here, so far as I can discern from the movie, is that the Thai Corporation was already killing it. Like, they, he was already wildly rich. <laughs> and this thing made them just that much richer. So you're going back and forth in time, not to a time before <laughs> the wealth, mm -hmm, but to a mm -hmm. time of slightly less wealth. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's, it's a little bit like... Oh, we're, we're, <laughs> the Beanie Baby thing is like, well, yes, it was a cultural moment that was bizarre. It, it also further enriched this man who further, you know, um, basically was more and more selfish and less likely to give any of the credit or dollars to anybody else in his life. And that's awful to see, but it's, it's not like, 
if the Beanie Baby thing hadn't happened, he would have been <laughs> fundamentally a different, different experience of his life. It's it's a very strange movie in that way. It's it, you don't you're not seeing a transformation happen. You're just seeing him systematically take advantage of multiple people. And um, you know, I think it is an interesting watch. I think there's some good performances. Galifianakis is really good, really good in this movie. I mean, I think as a comic actor, he's always I think brought an A game to things, but I don't think people kind of give credit to comic actors in the way they do to dramatic actors. And he really has a dramatic turn here. I think it is, it's a really nuanced performance that I was impressed with. But uh, overall, it's not a movie that, I mean, I learned things in that I learned what a horrible human this guy was. Uh, but it is also the kind of movie where <laughs> people will say the thing straight out that we all know is true, but I have a hard time believing they knew it was true at the right. time. Like when you, know? you talk about with like air, you're talking about like this guy, Michael Jordan is going to be the greatest basketball yeah. player. Michael of all Jordan time. is going to win six championships <laughs> yeah, yeah, and be yeah. you know, it's like oddly specific, you know, like <laughs> we know in the benefit of hindsight that that was yeah. all true, but I have a hard time believing a person at the time would be that, but like there's one character in this movie who constantly is saying the thing like, mm -hmm. trust me, all we have to do is X, Y, Z and beanie babies will be the, you know, it's like, really? <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe mm -hmm. she was that had that much foresight and it's all to kind of demonstrate a level of, um, credit that she was denied, right? That, that mm. the, the movie is trying to illustrate that this guy who, was at the head of it who named the company after himself really wasn't response completely responsible for the mm -hmm. success, but it, it's also doing so in, in the, in the way of like, no, this person knew everything that was going to happen. And it's like, <laughs> I have a hard time buying that. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, an interesting movie. I think, um, just really trying harder than it needs to. I think, I think if the movie had been a sort of a to B to C progression through the life of Ty and the, through the, you see the buildup of all that what's going on. I think it would have been more coherent and a little less bewildering to me personally. But, you know, I like movies that are trying to do something a little more sophisticated. And this movie certainly is. I just didn't think it's necessary in this case. Yeah, I, I feel like at some point we're going to have to reckon with the fact that so many movies coming out right now are about capitalism basically or pe about people taking advantage of capitalism like, Turns what is out that a lot of this stuff is uh not, not so great for us as a society <laughs> yeah like, but yeah. like but the movies kind of many times like in right. the case of tetris and air right the movies mm -hmm. really strain to frame it as a as a beautiful to frame capitalism as a beautiful thing i think yeah the, the cheetos movie is like another right, one of cheetos movies again yeah. yeah great another great example flaming um, hot yeah so I don't uh, think this is attempting to. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say this doesn't. This, this doesn't, is an this, indictment of capitalism, yeah, 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 if anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. an indictment. I mean, I think the movie is trying to show how stupid the buying populace was at the mm -hmm. same time. You know, it, it mm -hmm. is not. I mean, there's a a, a very famous story of uh, a beanie baby uh, semi truck that was carrying beanie babies crashing on the highway and it causing a riot because people thought it was just it, it was the the equivalent of dropping gold bullion on the highway, you know? Oh, yeah. uh, and this movie makes a lot of hay out of that moment. Um, and I think is, is clearly shining the spotlight on, you know, us as consumers and how frivolous and 
uh, easily duped we can be you know um yeah. i would say that's a refreshing take then for these yeah. kinds of movies you know so but i'm intrigued jeff uh thanks for checking out and talking about it that's the beanie bubble right it's available right now on <laughs> apple tv plus uh and that is something that jeff cannot has been watching let's take a quick break talk about a sponsor we'll be back with more what we've been watching right after this if you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. Oh, 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 you need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. All right, folks, I want to tell you about something I've been watching this week. I had a chance to watch a movie called Hidden Strike. You guys heard about Hidden Strike? I, I have heard about This is the John Cena one, right? This movie has a really interesting backstory, okay? <laughs> because according to Netflix, this movie has 22 million views over the course of the last couple of weeks. Uh, it has terrible reviews people don't <laughs> seem to like it very much uh, also by the way the movie is called project extraction in different parts of the world so you might know it as project extraction in the united states we know it as hidden strike this movie is number one on netflix in 50 countries man and it has the seventh biggest opening weekend quote unquote you know in terms of viewership uh on the 2023 netflix films chart the movie was completed in 2018 and sat on the shelf for four years before it was brought back to life and then put on Netflix. So I assume looking Netflix, at the trailer, I can see why. Just I assume look, Netflix yeah. didn't pay very much money for it. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, okay, so what are my thoughts on Hidden Strike? The movie's not very good. Uh, well, also, it, who are the names? Like, uh, the the, I mean, the biggest people are ja Jackie Chan and John Cena. It, right? Like, I'd watch that instant. That, yes. That's the thing. That's the thing is like, uh, you know, I saw some critics, right? Oh, they don't have any chemistry. I disagree. I actually think they have mm -hmm. pretty solid chemistry together. Jackie Chan was 64 years old when he filmed this movie. And he still knows how to do really good action scenes. Now, here's the mm -hmm. thing. He doesn't do action scenes that are uh, as intense as the ones he previously did. The action scenes don't look as good in this movie because they've been edited to shreds. Uh, I will tell you that Jackie Chan has 2.5 action scenes in this movie. So I okay. I kept count. And one of them is actually pretty cool. Is uh, a nuclear family worth of action scenes. That's right. That's exactly <laughs> right. And there's a white picket fence as well. But um, so he has 2.5 action scenes in this movie and they're pretty decent. You know, they're not the best Jackie Chan ever, but... Uh, they're not terrible, and it's just impressive to watch a living legend who, again, was 64 at the time of this filming, uh, still move like he moves. You know, he can move, he can parkour up a building. You know, and I'm just I, I can't do that, and I'm decades younger than he is. And when he made this movie, uh, I like seeing him. You know, hang out with John Cena, and they have pretty solid chemistry together. Um, 
but unfortunately, most of the movie's pretty bad. Uh, the movie combines certain elements of different kinds of movies. Like, uh, I-, I think it's heavily inspired by Mad Max Fury Road. I'm just which, looking at the trailer, yes. Like, which, direct, by the way, the movie shots. takes place in uh, Iraq, and apparently, the filmmakers' imagining of Iraq is it's like it's like the world of Mad Max Fury Road. Um, and the the thing is, imagine trying to make Mad Max Fury Road, but you only have one eighth of the budget. Uh, the the graphics, it's literally PS3 level graphics. Yeah, I've Play- been seeing the trailer for this several times, and uh, the backgrounds look like computer games. Like Ter- it, terrible. It, nothing Play- looks real. PlayStation 3 Awful. level graphics uh, is what it looks like. <laughs> this so, is amazing, actually. Like yeah. they, they made a whole movie that looks like this. Yeah, well, that's the thing. is Some parts of the movie actually look really good. And then they go outside and it's it, it doesn't even, you know, we talk about movies that were shot on the volume, like right, the right. Batman. It's like, it doesn't even look like the volume. It looks like. Can't afford I, the volume. It can't afford the volume. They couldn't afford the volume. I have uh, the terrible. wall. You can only point the camera in this direction, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Not an entire volume. So that, that unfortunately is a really big distraction is I would say a good 50% of the movie takes place outdoors and it looks awful. Uh, and you know, the plot is complete nonsense and you know, the, the villains are not particularly memorable. Uh, but you got, you got Jackie Chan, you got John Cena, they're hanging out there. They have good chemistry. You got some decent action scenes. So it's not the worst movie, uh, but it's not great. Uh, but you know, for me, I'm like a huge fan of Jackie Chan. Like I'm a diehard Jackie Chan fan, right? Like I will watch pretty much anything Jackie Chan's in as long as he does a few fight scenes in it. So like, uh, I, I was happy to show up for this. But it's not, you know, I actually asked my mom. I said, hey, mom, um, there's a new Jackie Chan movie on Netflix. She's like, oh, I watched it. It was terrible. You know, <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't even get my mom's seal of approval. Uh, you know, it, it, which is a pretty it's a pretty simple film, pretty simple to understand. But uh, she thought it was terrible. She thought it, she, she the way she described it is it's it felt like a video game, which is not mm-hmm. she, you know, Jeff, she used pejoratively. But uh, I obviously don't feel that way. The but, trailer uh, looks like a video game. Yeah. So, and I love yeah. video games. So Hidden Strike on Netflix, a real mixed bag, a real mixed bag. But uh, I, I watched it and got what I wanted out of it. If you're not a diehard Jackie Chan fan, though, I, I don't you probably won't enjoy it is my guess. Um, but it is a movie that it, it, it's notable to me that it is the number one film in 50 countries. People on Netflix just like watching slop, I think, is kind of. Uh, one of the takeaways from these Netflix charts, which so. is why, I mean, not to get on a tangent, but uh, mm-hmm. which is why when I, you know, hear people say like, don't worry about the AI writing because right. they mm-hmm. never reach the heights of artistic yeah. human endeavor. It's like people don't care. <laughs> yeah. Most, most people don't care about that. Yeah. I, I, I would agree with you, Jeff. I think that's a big concern. So anyway, hidden strike on Netflix. That's one thing I've been watching. Devinder Hardware. What's one thing you've been watching? Oh, yeah, I've been checking out season two of This Fool on Hulu. And this is a show created by Chris Estrada, Pat Bishop, and Jake Wiseman. And uh, I talked about the first season specifically because I really loved Corporate. And Pat Bishop and Jake Wiseman created that show, and that show died. Um, And this show has a very similar sensibility, um, but this season is actually very different than the first. Uh, It's sort of like it has their irreverent comedy, but it's also uh, filtered through the lens of like L.A. Chicano culture. You know, Chris, it's about Chris Estrada um, playing a character who's like the straight laced dude. In the first season, he was running a, uh, a gang rehabilitation center called Hugs, Not Thugs. 
And uh, it was very much about that. Uh, Michael Imperioli was also his boss in that one. I'm only like, I'm like three episodes into season two. And uh, that organization doesn't show up because I believe uh, something happened at the end of season one. So he's in a slump. It's It feels very different this season, but it's still very, very funny. And uh, actually, the second and third episodes go full on Dog Day Afternoon. It becomes like a hostage situation. Um, but through the like lens of Chris Estrada and through the lens of the guys who did corporate, I think they're just genuinely hilarious. So I, I will follow Pat Bishop and uh, Jake Wiseman wherever they go, no matter what they do. I think the show is definitely worth a watch, even if you like look at the trailers and like, I don't know if, if this like is a thing I'd be into, even if you are not like as interested in Chicano culture as you you think you may be uh i think it's worth watching it's just genuinely funny and um like chris estrada is a very good straight man up against uh frankie quinones who is the more he is his uh i think cousin who came in came home from jail in the first season and was going through that rehabilitation program as like trying to make his way in the world in season two i won't spoil too much but the tables are flipped a little and that leads to comedy i think it's generally good so check out this fool on uh, hulu yeah, this full season two on Hulu. Uh, I remember you talking about it. I've heard great things about this show. Yeah, I think uh, you I'll, you would dig it because of the corporate vibes. Yeah, yeah, I'll try to check it out. Okay, Jeff Kanata, what's one thing you've been watching? Well, I know that all three of us uh, eagerly returned to the new season of How to with John Wilson. Yeah, a buddy. show that we have all lauded in the past uh, on uh, Max, the one to watch for HBO. Um, I will tell you. I could not watch the first episode. Did you watch this one with your mom, Jeff? <laughs> that, <that's> no, <laughs> no. I, wa- I was watching it with my wife, uh, who yeah. had to leave the room. I had to turn off the first episode. I could not do it. So much poop. <laughs> I so much feces. Could not do it. I was like, you know what? I'm gonna go to go to episode two. I'm gonna go just right. I just. I don't, there are some episodes I just don't need to see, and I'm sure it veers away from that at some point, but. Nope, I didn't need to see all the the, the sewer the poop? poopy poops. I didn't need to see the dirty, filthy I mean, New that, York that's subway toilet. That's the foundation toilet. of society, man. Didn't like, need that's, to see that's it. it. Sorry, i I liked having I like having my vomit stay in my body, and not come <laughs> out of my face. Um. So, but we love this show. I love this show. The subsequent episode that I watched uh, was a delight. It. If, if you haven't heard us talk about it before, How to with John Wilson isn't like anything else on television. It is uh, basically a found footage show it for real. It's uh, some people go out in New York City yeah. and film things for hours and hours and hours and hours. And then they come back and put all that weird, odd, disparate footage in some sort of order and fashion a narrative out of it. And the narrative but also in the process, tell like the most realistic story of New York ever made basically like <laughs> well, this that, is, yeah. that narrative often veers wildly from where it starts the uh-huh. shows ostensibly are about how to do something but often not often invariably they uh they you know go into places that you wouldn't expect based on that prompt and uh often are heartwarming and and cute and interesting sometimes uh disturbing and disgusting uh, as the first episode was but i'm I love the show. And like I said, there's nothing else like it. I mean, how many other shows will make you want to like viscerally turn it off when things get too weird, right? Like there was, there was the guy pulling his, uh, his dong in that one episode Mm -hmm. just like cut to it and didn't even like prepare us for it. I think the show is so twisted and wild because of that. But listen, 
I, I miss New York. And these are the sorts of things you kind of run into. The first episode, the, the main premise is, uh, you know, uh, where, how to find a public toilet in New York. And it's actually very simple. It's a very simple thing. Uh, you go to you either go to uh, like a Starbucks or something or you go to a hotel. Just walk in the hotel lobby and go to their bathrooms. They're everywhere. They don't they can't stop you because they're like, you're, you're a guest, right? Yes. Yes, I am absolutely a guest. Um, one thing I'll mention about this episode. He just cracked the whole system. He like really this. has. He's like every New Yorker knows this. Like every every New Yorker actually knows where to go to use a bathroom, which is what's really funny. First of all, missed opportunity in this episode because there, for anybody who is there, uh, on the northeast corner of Bryant Park is an impeccably maintained public bathroom that is just like I don't know how it exists. You walk into this thing and you're like, you have there's somebody cleaning it every hour. It's impossibly clean. It's just out here on the street corner. You're like, yes, that that is when I'm surprised he didn't go there. I, I don't want to spoil much, but I think it is very fun to see. Um, there are some scenes in the first few seasons, I think specifically the first few episodes, where he is flushing cat litter down the toilet. And I said to my wife, you don't do that. That's that's a no. If I recall correctly, it's just cat poop. It's cat poop, but he occasionally puts a, puts a bit a bit of litter down there too. Mm. He, he, folks, you should not even put cat poop down there because it messes up the whole septic uh, sanitation system. Mm. Um, but that comes back to bite yeah. him. <laughs> Confirmation in this of that in this episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the don't, second don't episode that. is how to clean your ears, which again oh, started, and I was like, oh, is th- the entire theme of this season is just going to be <laughs> gross me out. But then it becomes this lovely metaphor about mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. sound in your ears and and quiet, and and I thought that episode was lovely oh, i love this man i'm so sad there's no more after the season right yeah this, this is the, the final one. season of the show uh i'm grateful that we got a final season mm-hmm. but yes i uh i'm really loving the show as well i mean you know there was a time in my life when moving to new york you know i grew up in boston i spent the first like two decades of my life yeah. in and around boston and moving you just to wanted new to move york, to a better city right moving to new york was like oh <laughs> that's a thing like that's a thing i aspire to do one day yeah you know like that's that was kind of a thing where like oh one day maybe i'll make it to the big actual city New York. And uh, now that I'm watching the show, I realize uh, I'm I'm terrified of New York. I'm glad I'm not there. <laughs> I mean, it, listen, every, every city is bad. I The most poop I've seen in public is San Francisco, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and uh, like every city, Seattle has has all sorts of things like it's New York is a particular. It's a weird thing because like the public transit is so good and everybody can just get everywhere. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you end up mixing around a lot of people you probably don't see in other cities. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's just like wow. There, like whenever I'm watching How to with John Wilson, I'm like that's another person I wouldn't get along with. You know, that's kind of how I feel. Uh, and and also I'm kind of mildly terrified by. So, uh, uh, but at the same time, I think yeah, the B-roll on the show is next level. Uh, the way it winds from uh, topic to topic, it kind of mm-hmm. mirrors like what what the human mind does when it is going on tangents you're like hey what would that you know what would it be like if i lived in a place where there was no sounds or you know you kind of you kind of have these reveries and this is a show that i feel like actually manifests those reveries into an actual documentary show so i'm a big fan of how to with john wilson it's Um, the dream of anybody who's done every any sort of just like b-roll shooting or shooting video around their city or like i'm gonna do something with this project one day season one it was all his b-roll i believe and now he has like yeah he has a team of folks so now uh, i feel like it's not as organic it's not as as pure not as pure pure. yeah 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 but anyway still a great show how to john wilson season three airing right now on uh max the one to watch for hbo by the way i just want to say 
that's one of my favorite recurring things on this podcast is uh-huh. every time we say Max, we need to call it Max someone to watch HBO. How so. else would you know? Exactly. That's right. You'd be talking it's, about it's, Cinemax. It's weird to just say Max. Like, isn't yeah. that weird? It's yeah. weird to say, it, you can watch it on Max. It's like, did you mean to say the rest of the sentence? <laughs> um, so, how to with John Wilson on Max someone to watch HBO. I want to talk about uh, a show called Twisted Metal that is right now on Peacock. All 10 episodes are streaming right now on Peacock. That That is a sentence, by the way, that feels entirely imaginary. <laughs> Try to explain that sentence yeah. to someone from six years ago. Yeah. Uh, but... A Twisted Metal live action TV show starring the Falcon. Peacock. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, that's so good. Yeah, so yeah. true. Very true, Devendra. Well, well, well put. Well put. Um, I almost, I almost met him in person actually to talk about this before they stopped doing uh, promo because yeah, of the strikes. Yeah. But I was going to talk to. I just wanted to talk to Anthony Mackie about Twisted Metal. Sure. Okay. Well, I, I will tell you, Anthony Mackie is the best thing about Twisted Metal. Uh, it is fun to watch him in a comedic role just cutting loose right like he you most of the time you see him uh, in uh, falcon and winter soldier in, in the avengers franchise in hurt locker in black mirror it's like almost always he's playing a serious role mm-hmm. this is the first role i've seen him in in a long time where he's just having fun having a blast cracking jokes uh and so it's the the show is worth considering for that reason alone uh I don't think the show is that great for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's based on Twisted Metal. It's based on the Twisted video Metal. Game. Yes. It's based on Twisted Metal, the video game, which kind of I, I would describe Twisted Metal, the video game, as like Mortal Kombat or Street Fighter, but uh-huh. for cars. Like you had to be there. You had to be there, kids. You you drive these cars around that are kitted out with these bombs and missiles and other weapons, and you try to kill other people. It's death in these race. Cars. It's death race as a video game, basically. Yeah, yeah, except there's no race. You know, it's yeah. you're just trying to kill other cars. Um, I loved this franchise when I was <laughs> younger. You know, yes. I, I love Twisted Metal. I played Twisted Metal on PS1, PS2. Huge fan of the franchise. Um, a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, some of the movies that Mattel is trying to make that are now definitely going to get made because Barbie has been so successful. Um, there's going to be a Polly Pocket movie. There's going to be an Uno movie. There's going to be a Magic 8-Ball movie. Uh, and one of the things that came up in that article in the New Yorker talking about this phenomenon is that it feels like uh, some people have other kinds of movies they want to make, and they're just shoehorning it into, you know, an Uno movie because they know the Uno movie is going to get made. But mm-hmm. their movie about, you know, nuclear proliferation wouldn't get made otherwise because there's no IP. <laughs> so they try to like make it into a, a Uno Pocket. nuclear movie. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it kind of feels like that's the case with Twisted Metal. You know, Twisted Metal takes place in a post-apocalyptic landscape <laughs> uh, where Anthony Mackie plays this character who's, uh, uh, his name is John Doe. He's a he's what's called a milkman who drives supplies from one outpost to another. And he gets one big job, one last job. And that kind of takes up the majority of the, of the series. Um, but I, I don't know if you guys if you guys feel this way. But if I'm watching a twisted metal show, I want to watch cars go boom boom. Like, yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> I want to watch cars fight and go boom boom. That's kind of what I'm watching it for. Uh, I don't need this post apocalyptic storyline and yeah. all this angst and all this. So it just feels we, we like we live in the age of Fast and Furious. Uh, cars just need to go boom. That's all I need. Yeah. yeah, that's that's that is what I need. Um, but 
th- this is you know the the show has a lot of plot, uh, <laughs> and he's he's meeking he's meeting a lot of people that aren't from the video game, uh, and they're trying to build a whole world out of it. The movie is written and created by the be- the people who did Zombieland and Deadpool, and it has that tone. It basically feels like a high school edgelord wrote a lot of the scripts. Uh, and so if you, if you like that tone of like, uh, look at how, you know, like Ricky Gervais saying like, look at how funny I am. Why aren't you laughing? Is it because I'm too edgy for you? Um, you're going to love Twisted Metal, the Peacock streaming series. Well, I you wouldn't, know, I wouldn't qual. I wouldn't consider Deadpool and Zombieland that. I think you're right about that, Jeff. I think, I think uh, their, their uh, impulses were probably a little bit tempered. In those cases, but gotcha. this is full on like <laughs> we're trying really hard to be like, huh? Like, aren't you offended by this? You know, mm, aren't you offended by this thing? You know, it is what it feels like. Uh, That's unfortunate because I feel like uh, uh, I love the comedy in Deadpool. I love the comedy in Zombieland. I had a great time with those movies. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's like that cranked up to probably thirty to fifty percent more than it was there. You know, mm. that like meta mentality of like. Look how smart I am commenting on what's going on. Like I know, yeah. like I'm I'm one of you. I'm like a viewer, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, it's it's something that I think most people listening to this would find annoying. But all that said, uh, the car combat when it happens rarely is pretty good. You know, it's like hey, they they got the car combat correct. Also, there's just so many baffling things about the show. Like Will Arnett <laughs> plays Sweet Tooth. Just the voice, but, I'm sure. Yeah, but Samoa, just the voice. Samoa Joe, yeah. Samoa plays. Joe plays the body of Sweet Tooth, yeah. <laughs> and so e- even just watching that is fascinating. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's almost like you're watching. Like, I-, I have no idea how they made it. My guess is Will Arnett recorded the performance, and then they played it, and then Samoa Joe did the body acting. David Chen is blown away by the performance of Darth Vader. <laughs> <laughs> come on, come on, Dave. What? <laughs> That's uh, amazing. I mean, that is impressive, Devendra. Okay, that is yes. impressive. Yeah. yeah. One, one person does the moving. One person does the talking. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but uh, my point is, I want to give props to Samoa Joe because, like, if I didn't know that that was Will Arnett, at no point would I question that the voice and the body are the same person. I would, like, I would want to know like what he sounds like as Sweet Tooth, to be honest. Samoa Joe. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so. Real mixed bag. Some good stuff, some bad stuff. You get to see Anthony ba- Mackie have some fun. I think yeah. the tone is really abrasive and irritating. And the other thing, by the way, I want to mention is um, the show is unfortunately very low budget for what it's trying to achieve because it's like it takes place in this post-apocalyptic world and uh, it has often has CG on par with Hidden Strike. Uh, so <laughs> At least it's a TV show. Yeah, so. that's well, right. That's right. That's my question is, is you said the the car combat is good. Is, is there enough of the car combat? I mean, not I feel like really, not no. really. like a lot of the car combat is done practically. It feels like that's right? cool. Yeah. 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 But then, um, you know, it, it just clearly the reach exceeds its grasp in terms of the budget. Mm-hmm. You know I am saying like, like the r- minimum requirement is one car combat scene per episode. Yeah. I don't think it, I don't think it hits that. Did Knight Rider teach that. us nothing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Come on. We've yeah. been doing this for decades. Yeah. So it is a show that a hazard. Yeah. yeah, it is a show that I think is not great, but also I still find to be strangely compelling, uh, is how I would describe it. Uh, anyway, those are my thoughts on Twisted Metal 
on Peacock. I'm curious if you guys ever check it out. I'll be curious to hear what you guys think of it. Whether I'll you probably agree see with a couple. So, yeah. Yeah. I have but, tried to force myself to start the first episode a few times, and I'm just like, I, I, just, I just know I'm not going to like this. <laughs> yeah. Although I, I've heard from people that said it's not, you know, it's better than they thought it was going to be. So. Yeah. I, I, I just think you'd find that, like, I, I think I've done maybe not a great job of describing the tone, Jeff, but I think you'd, it's something that I think most people would find annoying. You know, I think yeah. it's like, um, you know, like I said, it's like a high. It feels like it was written by a high schooler in the '90s. You know, and like yeah, and I feel like this. You have way more affection for the IP than I ever did, mm-hmm, right there. So yeah. you were even more inclined to sort of yeah. dig it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, Twisted Metal on Peacock. That's one of the things I've been watching this week. Let's take another break for a sponsor. We'll be back with more. What we'll be watching right after this. All right, Devendra, you had a chance to wrap up justified right yeah the original series i have a question for you guys um is justified the best tv show with the worst theme song or title song <laughs> wow no, there's like i feel like there's way worse theme songs I agree worse, but this is pretty bad i agree with this Jeff. Is... don't go too hard on the no, okay song. give me some give me some examples oh man i asked a question put me on the spot but yeah mm. I was like, I love Firefly. I don't really like the theme song that much, but I have some affection for it. Whereas the Justified ones, like, man, just, I, I was talking to people online. I posted about this on uh, Blue Sky or something, and people were like, yeah, I race to the remote to skip as soon as, as soon as that beat starts. Uh, I'll funny. say, yeah. I'll throw a couple out there. Um, uh-huh. Entourage. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I said good shows. <laughs> Malcolm, in the, shows Malcolm in the middle. Malcolm in the middle. Bad song. Malcolm That's a great song. What? Okay. Okay. You're right. You're right. That's... I love that song. Great credits. I'm gonna have to come back to this. Yeah. Yeah. Come I'm back. Like, now I gotta think. I think, about I, it. I, think I laid down the actual law right here. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, my statement is justified. Uh, I. <laughs> the show is so good. The show is so good, so guys. Good. Um, I'm very glad I was able to finish in this way. It wasn't like the ideal way. I was basically. Um, when I'm laid up on, on the bed after giving my kids their baths and stuff, so I'm just like, I'm not going to move. I'm going to watch them justified when I'm doing dishes, justify is playing on the iPad and on my uh, AirPods and stuff, which actually works out pretty well because then I can really just enjoy that dialogue, you know, and that is to me has always been the strength of this show, the performances and the dialogue. Uh, I'm very glad I finished have to say seasons four and five didn't really do much for me. I think they were perfectly fine. Um, but I I could have I could have been fine with like one, two, three, and then just all the way to six. Because I think um by season six, uh things get really interesting. Uh I didn't like the time we spent with uh, Ava in jail, especially in the era of Orange is the New Black. It just felt very tired and like rehashed. But by season six, Walton Goggins just has full on crazy eyes. And that character pushed to like the limit of like things i think is just really really fascinating to watch so he is very good i'm very glad i finished it i'm very glad i got to see like what happened to these characters i'm also watching city primeval you know concurrently at the same time um but yeah justify is just right there sitting right there on hulu so if you're looking for some good neo-western fun um it's definitely worth checking out for me season two remains the strongest yeah i have a real soft spot for season one because that was like nobody's doing this nobody's doing cool like you know, Western style dialogue in the modern day on TV. And uh, season one just felt like revolutionary to me. And I spent a lot of time trying to get people to watch that. Season two was like Margot Martindale as uh, I believe she was like, what, a drug queen or something at that yeah. point. Uh, but she was fantastic. And uh, there are characters from that season that keep popping up throughout the rest of the series. Uh, but at least watch the first two seasons of Justified because the show's incredible. 
And yeah. then go ahead and uh, yeah, watch the new City one. City Primeval too. also very good. Um, streaming right now on Hulu. It's a great summer show. So it, I, um, it is a it is a, a point of sadness for me that there is no Goggins in the City Primeval. Mm, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, indeed, indeed. All right. There's lots of Goggins all over the place. You guys should be watching the Righteous Gemstones. I, I'm actually planning to get in. I'm planning to marathon. I think you that. would both love. I'm planning the to marathon really? that because I've heard it's great. yes, yes, yeah. Uh, yes. I've heard. Mm. I've heard like it's like with the greatest show that people aren't talking enough about. So that uh, and there yeah. is going to be another season. So I, I'm definitely going to catch up with Righteous Gemstones. Um, and I think each each season is only like what 10, 5, 30 they're minute. Really, episodes, they're really right? quick. So, I yeah. talked about the first couple seasons. I fell off last season, but yeah, that's a show we should talk about more. Sounds sure. like strike content. Yep. Yep. Very possibly. All right. Uh, Jeff Kanata, uh, last thing you've been watching this week. Uh, I also uh, checked out a another, uh, you know, last week I'd spoken about just one mile and how much it affected me and moved me as somebody who's uh, done a lot of endurance running and is gearing up for an endurance race at the end of the month. Uh, and I got a lot of people uh, thanking me for that recommendation and also suggesting other uh, similar documentaries. Including, including the producer of the film reached out to us. Which was a delight to hear. I'm, I'm so glad. And, and I'm so glad so many people checked out that documentary based on my, uh, my bringing it up. So many people were like, oh my gosh, thanks for mentioning this. I didn't know it existed. Just one mile. Uh, I just, I loved it. Um, so folks were saying, hey, there are other uh, interesting endurance marathon type uh, documentaries, one of which I checked out this week that several people recommended. It's called The Barkley Marathons, The Race That Eats Its Young. This is a documentary that was, uh, that came out all the way back in, I think, 2014, 2012, 2014, 24, it's a long time ago. Uh, coming on a decade now. Um, this is a race that is still happening. Uh, the 2023 version happened in March. Uh, and it is also credited as being one of the most grueling uh, endurance races ever conceived. Where just one mile, I lauded for its uh, simplicity and, and sort of just beautiful elegance in, in being that you just run in one mile and you go until nobody else can run anymore. You try to be the last man standing. That's just a beautifully elegant, you know, just a focused idea. This is the opposite of that. <laughs> the Barkley Marathons. Have you guys ever heard of this thing? No, never heard no. of it. I did see someone recommended it, but yeah, I'd never heard of it. It also happens in Tennessee, which I think, I think the, the um, um, mid, uh, what is it, mid-city? Mid-city is what the the just one mile is about anyway um this was inspired by an attempted prison break where somebody got into the hills of tennessee and was out for 53 hours before they apprehended him and they found him like just completely spent and uh it's john lee john lee gacy john lee who's that anyway famous famous prison break the idea of the barkley marathon is john wayne gacy the serial killer is no john lee john johnny it doesn't matter i got it wrong it doesn't matter um the I shouldn't have even brought that up. The <laughs> idea of the of the Barkley Marathon is it is a twenty mile loop. A marathon is twenty six point two. A lot of people say it is a twenty mile loop, but it's not really twenty miles. It's more than twenty miles. Regardless, it is touted as a twenty mile loop that you are supposed to do five times in sixty hours without sleep. It has a huge elevation gain and descent. It is. It gets crazier, guys, because 
the course is not marked. You are given access to the one course map, which you cannot take with you. You have to copy down the map yourself in the time uh -huh. that you are allotted with it. You are given a compass, no altimeter, no GPS. Is this a race or a, like a death wish? It is. Jeff? It does seem to be a death wish. Um, There's wild animals out there. It gets worse, it's not man. Great. It gets worse. Uh, there is, <laughs> there is no tracking of you. The only th th there are a number of paperback books that are placed on the race course in various locations. You are given a bib number. So your bib number is, say, 32 or 57 or whatever it is. You are to reach each of the paperback books, find the page that corresponds to your bib number, rip it out of the book, and carry it with you. So you have to return to the start of the loop with all of the pages of all of the paperback books that correspond to your bib number to prove that you did it. You run day and night. Up and down these massive hills, there is no, it is through the wilderness. So there are these brambles that are everywhere uh -huh. through the Tennessee wilderness. Every single person on the course, their legs are shredded, like Passion of the Christ level, bloody shins oh, wow. knees we, we have those down here i don't know what it is about southern plants but even the pine cones are just surrounded in thorns <laughs> so yeah everything down here is trying to kill you it it's this is an insane thing so at the time of this uh movie which i think is 2012 uh it had been going since 1985 i believe and 10 people had finished the race 10 <laughs> It had been going the rest for, have died. The rest have died. <laughs> most, somewhere out there. The vast majority of people do not finish it. Uh, the, the, they, you have to apply to even get accepted to be allowed to race it. The admission fee is $1.60, $1.60. And you also have to bring the, the guy who created it a shirt, like a flannel shirt. <laughs> bring me a shirt. Yeah. He like literally is like, I just needed shirts. So I don't like going to the store. He goes, one so year I, I needed this whole thing to <laughs> get shirts. One year I needed socks. So I just asked for socks <laughs> as an entry fee. Um, so you, uh, yeah, you have to apply to get in. They only take 40 people a year. Only 10 people over decades have even completed it. They call completing three loops. Now, again, it's a five loop challenge. They can call completing three loops the fun run. That's the fun run. If you complete the fun run, that's a match of accomplishment. Now, again, that would be 60 miles over multiple days of nonstop running. The people who have completed it, 60, they have to do it in 60 hours. There's a cutoff after 60 hours. That is, there's no sleep in, the, in 60 hours. Yeah, Jeff, is the government aware of this? This event? I feel are like there the, has to be have, some federal are the legal authorities aware of this. Yeah. yeah. What's so, happening here? Oh, so how is the film, Jeff? Uh, I, I found the film to be a uh, pretty entertaining. It is not, you know, just one mile. I was weeping throughout it. I felt very moved by the, just the humanity of it. This is so wacky. And I mean, there is still that sense of 
you know, people ask me, why, you know, why would you even run a marathon? Why do you even do this? Why are you going to do Hood to Coast? Like, why? why? There is something about doing a thing that you didn't think you could do mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. incredibly powerful uh, and incredibly moving to me. Um, and the idea of challenging yourself, there, there's a wonderful line where one of the competitors in it is being interviewed in this movie. And they said, he says, um, um, it is, it, I'm not going to be able to get the quote exactly right, but there's something along the lines of um, hurting, they're, they're, not enough people hurt themselves. Like not enough people, hurting yourself is not a bad thing. Like feeling pain, so not enough people feel pain intentionally. Like to push yourself past what you think your limits are and to understand that when you're not in pain, there is a place that you can go that you can survive and push through and get through it. Like that is a, a thing that is a, a very powerful, empowering thing for human beings to do. So there is an element of that in this film that I find compelling. But most of this film is like just how wacky this whole thing is and how, oh, Another big thing, <laughs> so this is a really cool element of it, I think, but again, wacky. So you do, the, you do the first loop where you start and you go in a big 20-mile loop. You do it clockwise. The second loop, you do counterclockwise. So, you're, so you, whatever you learned on the course the first <laughs> way through mm-hmm. is basically useless to you the second way through because <laughs> you have to do it backwards. And then you do the third, the third one clockwise again, the fourth one mm-hmm. counterclockwise, the fifth one, if you get there. And by the way, people are sort of paired up trying to help each other get through it, right? Because it's so grueling and just navigating it is part of the challenge. Just figuring out where to go through the open wilderness in the dark. So people are, you know, have headlamps, they're paired up, they're trying to help each other, um, the fifth loop, if you get there, and very, very few people get there to the fifth loop, you've probably run nearly 100 miles by the time you even get to the fifth loop because it's over 20 each time. The fifth loop, the first person who gets there gets to decide whether it's clockwise or cl- counterclockwise, but the next person has to go the opposite way. So even though you have been part of a team up helping each other, it forces you to split up <laughs> when you are the most tired, the most incoherent, the most delirious from lack of sleep. It forces you to not be in a team anymore. It's, a, it's insane. And Has the person who made this, Jeff, have they actually done the whole thing? No. This sounds like... A nightmare Mario Maker level. And the thing about Mario Maker, right? You got to finish it. Right. You got to actually play through it on your own. So this this just seems like shit. Well, the guy who invented it, very much the centerpiece of this documentary, (laughs) uh, is an ultramarathoner, was one of the first ultramarathoners in the late 70s doing ultramarathon is 100 miles, which is just unfathomable to me. Like the fact that people do that at all is is just insane. I've done 26.2 and it's incredibly hard um so anyway he he has his bona fides as an ultra marathoner but they ask him straight out in this documentary like could you do it he's like oh god no (laughs) but and and everybody uh you know talks about him as being a sadist and like but people sign up to do it and people have completed it and it is wild to watch uh just people push to the limit 
my criticism with the documentary is that the course itself is so hard to traverse that it, it seems to me they had a really hard time placing camera operators in it. And so you get very little actual on the course stuff. There's a few points that they seem to have been able to get to where you'll see people come through and you'll get some of that, but there's not like a embedded film crew and they didn't ask any of the competitors to film themselves. So there's a, a, a disappointingly small amount of actual on the course yeah. racing. Most of it is at the checkpoint and, and checking in with people as they arrive and keeping up with it. The movie is a brisk 90 minutes. It's interesting and it's fascinating just to see the details of this thing, how it was conceived, how it's put together, like just, just the wacky nature of it. It's a really interesting documentary, but I, it did not hit me in the same way that just one mile did. Mm -hmm. it's, like if, a wacky, if, it's like a wacky thing and they made a, a competent documentary about it, but it's not like, oh, yeah. uh, you saw an amazing documentary about this Correct. amazing thing, right? Yeah. 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 If only um, somebody had made like tiny cameras that you could use for activities. You know, it could really <laughs> help 2012, this I think that was a little less mm. uh, pervasive technology, but... Uh, there, there, there were definitely small cameras back Yeah, there were definitely then, GoPros yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, back true. then, but yeah. It's um, not as like, pre prevalent as it is now, but yeah, still. Uh, also, Jeff, I think the person you were referring to earlier was James Earl Ray. Is that right? That sounds okay. correct. Thank you for uh, thank you for Googling. He's the person who um, assassinated uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And is then that, is that he tried to escape from the Tennessee prison? Is that right? I think that's correct. Um, but uh, with the help of six other people, I think. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, and they had uh, the biggest manhunt in Tennessee history at the time. And basically, he he. <laughs> so the the whole I mean to spoil the reason this thing was. It's not a big spoiler, but the, the idea, the idea behind the race is he was out in the wilderness for 53 hours and only made it eight miles away from the prison. Mm. And the guy mm. who created this race <laughs> thought that was hilarious. And as an ultra marathoner was like, I could, and who had grown up in that area and had hiked that area and done trail races and stuff turned to his friend and said, I could last a hundred miles. I could get a hundred miles away if mm -hmm. I was that dude in this wilderness. And so he's like, well, let's make a race while we do that. And that's how it happened. Gotcha. The movie is the Barkley marathons, the race that eats its young Jeff. I'm guessing you rented this on demand. Is that right? I did. It, it's yeah. uh, available on Amazon prime streaming for four bucks. All right. Uh, and that is what we've been watching this week. All right, let's get to some weekly plugs. <laughs> Weekly plugs, the part of the show each week where we plug something else we've been making. Uh, I am covering stuff multiple times each week over on the Decoding TV podcast, which you can find at podcast.decodingtv.com. In particular, I'm teaming up with Patrick Klepik, formerly and currently, I should say, a, a very well-regarded games journalist uh, who hosts Remap Radio, has his own Substack, uh, and we are planning to cover a bunch of TV in the months to come. So be sure to check us out over at uh, podcast.decodingtv.com. Uh, last week, we covered Full Circle, which is the Steven Soderbergh miniseries, uh, and just wrapped up its airing on Max the One to Watch for HBO. Uh, check us out. Uh, it was a great conversation. Devinder Hardware, what's your weekly plug? Sure. I'm off for the next few weeks in Gadget, but I did put up a piece recently about this $2,490 wireless podcasting kit 
it's it's wild. It's from a company called Nomino. Um, it's about two thousand four hundred dollars more than the kit that we're using right now. No, I'm just... <laughs> no, we're using a lot of kit. We're using a <laughs> we're, lot of kit. We're using a lot of different kits. Um, and held together by a relatively cheap service, but yes, indeed, indeed. Um, but this is uh, it, it's cool. It uses like little wireless lavalier mics and has like a base station that records spatial audio and background noise and kind of does the noise canceling thing. It's super expensive, but uh, you know, the stuff uh, sucks up all the audio, sends it straight to the cloud, and ideally, you know, in a, in a good setup, like you can have a usable local recording, um, without laying out cables and putting down microphones and stuff and like doing stuff that an audio engineer or producer would do. I think that's pretty wild. I don't know if anyone's actually going to go for this price though, but uh, yeah, check out my piece in gadget. I think it's pretty interesting. Well, with the incredibly lucrative world of podcasting. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, don't be, don't get it wrong. We are very grateful for our patrons and and the contributions they make, but uh, generally podcasting not required as the most lucrative of businesses. Unless you are, unless you are the top of the top or a business that's making podcasts. So, you know, like there, there are other things there, there are ways this could be useful, but yeah, it's not for normal. I I have to say like I invest a lot of money into podcasting equipment. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm always trying out the new stuff. Yeah. Like, I'm Nothing like, does what this does. Uh, yeah, I'm always trying out, like, uh, you know, I have a Rodecaster Pro, I have, like, Zoom uh, H6n, you know, I have all the different things because I'm always trying to figure out, like, what's the easiest way to capture audio? Mm-hmm. Um, but it would have to be pretty freaking amazing to justify a $2,500 price. Let's put it that way. So uh, yeah. I will... It's check, pretty wild. I'll check this out and uh, and look up some... Re- I'll check out this article and look up some reviews. Uh, but appreciate you bringing this to our attention, Devendra. No problem. Right, it's Jeff- cool. No, nobody buy this thing. This is <laughs> like, don't. do not no, buy no, this. No, no. Do not. This buy is it. the hidden strike of um, podcasting gear. All right, Jeff Kanata, your weekly plug. Well, I do a book club. Uh, I just read a statistic that uh, that fifteen percent of all published books that from major publishers. This isn't self publishing. Fifteen percent of all published books sell. 12 copies or less. That is incredibly depressing. So nobody's reading. And in that environment, ladies and gentlemen, I have started a book club show. Uh, talk about hitting a very growing market. Uh, I, I'm going to get this $2,500 podcasting kit because uh, I nowhere to go up from here. Um, anyway, the book club, the DLC book club, Lana Bashinsky and I, uh, who, who is just a delight and a wonderful person to be reading the books with. We're reading the Malazan Books of the Fallen by Stephen Erickson. And I have to tell you, folks, we got an extraordinary opportunity to interview Stephen Erickson himself. He is uh, an, just an amazing person, an incredible author. His work is staggeringly well-written. I just can't even tell. His prose is magnificent, lyrical, beautiful, introspective, and also just a killer fantasy story with action and awesome stuff. I mean, I really hope this gets adapted. It it deserves to be thought of alongside Game of Thrones or or Lord of the Rings or anything. The best of the best of the best. This is it. And we got to interview him. So even if you're not reading the books, we're doing, you know, read along in our book club, reading the books. We've gotten through two of the 10 so far. We're about to start the third book, Memories of Ice, uh, next week or this week, I should say. But uh, we got a chance to interview Steven Erickson and it's on my YouTube page, youtube.com slash Kanata Jeff. It was an awesome interview. He is just 
fascinating, so thoughtful, so gracious with his times. He he just he's just a, a delight. So even if you aren't reading the books, I recommend checking out the interview with Steven Erickson on my YouTube cha- uh, YouTube channel because he's he's inspiring and cool and uh, talks a lot about tabletop D and D, which is how the world of his fantasy novels was created. Talks about archaeology, like he is Indiana Jones. He goes and does archaeological digs as a hobby, as just for fun. He volunteers. Talks about that. Talks about his life. It's it's a great wide ranging discussion without spoilers uh, for the books. So check it out. Very cool. Hey, Jeff, uh, Libsyn, the podcast company, has published in the past numbers for distribution of mm. podcast downloads. Like, uh, do you want to guess how many downloads your podcast needs to get to be in the top 50% of podcasts? Oh, I think it's like eight downloads. <laughs> <laughs> Not that bad. But uh, 124. Yeah downloads if you, if your if you, your podcast episode gets more than 124 <laughs> downloads in the first 30 days you are in the top 50 percent of podcasts well i hope that um, someday we can achieve it i i agree it's a good long-term mm-hmm, goal for mm-hmm. us to shoot for you know? yeah um if your episodes get more than a thousand downloads you're in the top 20 percent more than three thousand downloads you're in the top 10 percent and if your episodes get more than 6700 downloads you're in the top three percent of podcasts in the world so that's according to Lipson. Of course, they're they're not exhaustive in terms of their data, but uh, it's a good it's a good data set. So yeah, um, it just speaks to how many podcasts there are. Indeed, indeed. All right. Well, I want to give a few plugs for the podcast. patreoncom podcast, How you can support the show and sign up for ad free episodes or exclusive after darks. Uh, of course, we never want anyone to donate if it in any way causes them financial hardship. You can always support the show by following us across our channels. Follow us on threads at the Filmcast Pod, YouTube at the Filmcast Pod, as well as Instagram at the Filmcast Pod. We'd really appreciate it if you could follow us, share our work along those platforms. It helps us to reach more people. You can always leave a star rating or a review for us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. It does help a lot. Thanks to everyone at patreon.com slash filmpodcast as well as across all of the social channels out there for making this show possible. Let's get to our review of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. Boys, where have you been? We're just running errands. That's it? Look, we're really sorry, Splinter. Some of the guys wanted to get pizza and I tried to talk them out of it. You ratted us out. Hey, don't use that word that way. I mean, it's 2023. Sorry, Dad. Hey, guys, if we weren't monsters that were shunned by society and we could do what we wanted, what would you guys do? Go to high school. Maybe get a girlfriend. Can you imagine that? Not likely. Welcome to the film cast review of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem. I'm going to read the plot summary of this movie from IMDb. The film follows the Turtle Brothers as they work to earn the love of New York City while facing down a threat. End quote. It actually gives away what the threat is, but I'm I'm (laughs) not going to say what the threat is because I don't want to say what it is. Um, Use your imagination. Use your imagination. It's Ice Cube! (laughs) Spoilers. Before before we start talking about this movie, why don't we spend a little bit of time talking about our relationship to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, I, uh, I was a big fan from childhood, watching the cartoon, playing the video games, uh, playing the arcade games, like it was a big part of my childhood, and like, uh, and one of the key touchstones of how I experienced pop culture. I haven't really been keeping up with the later 
sort of uh, renditions. I, I things kind of got a little wild there for a while. Yeah, there was a Platinum Dunes like Michael Bay executive yes. produced one. I literally don't know. If Didn't they we, have multiples? If yeah. we watched or reviewed that on this podcast, like it's possible we reviewed it on the podcast and I, I have no, no memory no, of it. No, no, no. Not that um, I recall. But yeah, there was one where the, basically the turtles look like Transformers. Um, you know, like they're all, they all have like, you know, 50,000 features and stuff like that. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, so, there, there was the mid 2000 CG one, which I kind of liked actually. But, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You yeah. like that one. You, you dug that one. Yeah. So anyway, um, a, a, a lots to like for me, you know, Devinder Hardware, what, was, what were the turtles like for you and your childhood? I mean, yeah, I grew up with it. Um, I feel like it, it was just a constant within our generation. But I always remember the first Turtles movie. Um, I watched that as a kid, and that is a fascinating movie because it is it's kind of slow going it's kind of deep it's it's about the turtles feeling like outsiders and not belonging in this world and that's the storyline i've always like attached myself to so that's why i've always loved about the x-men as well and yeah they're they're sillier campier versions of the turtles but for me it was always that core idea of that movie i like the second one too secret of the use but it was always the first movie i keep coming back to I thought there was always something like interesting and deep about them that the cartoons and all those things kind of lost. And then later on when I was older, I learned there were comics. And I also learned that, uh, yeah, the Turtles kind of were formed around where we went to college. So we have like a personal link to all those things too. But yeah, I love the Turtles. I love it like at least when you don't go fully cartoonish on it, I guess. Yeah. Jeff Kanata, any thoughts on the Turtles for you? I hate to break to you, fellas, but uh, there's only one person on this broadcast Uh that has been interviewed for the official Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles documentary. Who's that? That would be me. Oh. Uh, that would be me. Wow. I, am, I am in Turtle Power. <laughs> yeah. The uh, Turtles, uh, what is it? The subtitle, uh, The Definitive History of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, I was interviewed. I am on camera. I am in Outnerded by Jeff Kanata once again. So there, you go. <laughs> there you go. Once again. Boys, I think uh, I think I win. Uh, no, it, um, <laughs> it was really cool, actually, uh, when we were doing the Totally Rad Show. Myself, Dan Trachtenberg, Alex Albrecht, we we were all interviewed. Uh, we got to meet uh, Kevin Eastman uh, and uh, go to his house. Uh, we were interviewed in his house, uh, which he's the coolest dude because you walk nice. into his house and it's a mansion, and you're like, "Wow, this!" And he's like, "Oh, dude, I only have this because of you." He's like, I need to thank you. He's Aww. like, the only reason I have this is because of kids like you. And just the nicest, most humble dude. Um, and it was really a cool experience being interviewed about the history of TMNT and what it meant to us growing up and all that stuff. So anyway, check out that documentary. Uh, but uh, I, was, I, I, I love the, the Turtles. I took my six-year-old to go see this movie with me. Uh, he and I have been playing the, uh, the recent um, uh, side-scrolling beat up throwback retro uh, mm-hmm. side-scrolling beat up on PlayStation together. So he's all he was amped to see this as well. What do we think is the enduring appeal of the Turtles? I think I'm just going to speculate and you guys, you know, uh-huh. re- react. Uh-huh. But my, my feeling is maybe it just is the idea that, first of all, they're ninjas. So that's cool. Yeah. It's like they yeah. know how to do the martial literally, arts. Literally so everything in the title. Right. Exactly. Cool exactly. They're, te- they're teenagers. Teenage so it's like we can mutants. relate with them. They're, they're yes. like pizza and stuff. And then, of course, um, they're mutants, which is like, oh, yeah. wow, they have superpowers and and so on. And they're fighting and crimes. And they're ninjas. You know? Yeah. I said, and they're not said, ninja people. They're ninja turtles. Mm-hmm, it's the coolest right. thing in the world. Exactly. Yes. So I, I think it's just like this confluence of things that like kids mm-hmm. inherently find cool, right? Like there's I a think lot of, yeah. There is some weird ineffable thing that Eastman and Laird unlocked in that design. Yes. That is 
evocative that connects to us in some way putting the the blindfoldy thing on top of the turtle face and having weapons on a shell there's just something that kids connect to about that like that is cool it's just that visual design and there's been variations on that theme they've been more cartoony they've been more you know the original eastman and laird were very sort of anime and yeah and, and very yeah. black and white and harsh and, and more adult but whatever version of it, there's just something about seeing a turtle as a ninja that is cool, you know? Totally and the villains, Jeff, yeah. the villains were all crazy and iconic, too. Like, it's just like a lot of imagination going on in this world, you know? Uh, indeed. But mm -hmm. for whatever the case, it, it clearly, uh, uh, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, right, right, co-created them. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, for whatever reason, they've had an enduring power. And so the question heading into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem is, can this film modernize the Turtles for a new generation of moviegoers? Devinder Harder, let's start with you. What do you think of this movie? Uh, yeah, I totally think it can. Um, it basically uh, did the Spider-Verse thing. And that was actually part of the thing that was turning me off initially because uh, I saw the trailer for this. And it seemed fun. I knew it was coming from Seth Rogen. But I also feel like a lot of people were just like, following in the footsteps of what uh, Into the Spider-Verse did and trying different styles of animation and just like, yeah, different. The style of it just felt very evocative of that stuff. I think this movie is is freaking fantastic. And mainly because it reminds me of some of my favorite superhero media, specifically Sam Raimi Spider-Man 2. I think like this is one of the best interpretations of the turtles we've ever gotten. Uh, the voice work is so good. I believe some of them are just like actual kids. Um, like Jackie Chan is splinter. He, he gets a chance to be Jackie Chan too. within like a couple scenes. The, it looks so cool. I think it's really well written. It's very funny. It's very sweet. And it does harken back to that original idea of the turtles as outsiders and how like they are just out of place in this world. And that is a, that's a thing I felt since the first turtles movie. And I really feel it here. There's also a scene we'll talk about in spoilers too, which uh, evoked Spider-Man two for me and made me tear up a bit. So yeah, it, it does all the right things. I tried to bring my daughter to it and she is still very much sort of scared of the movie theater. So I'm like trying to break her out of that. Um, but I cannot wait to watch this with her. It's so good. Jeff Kanata, your thoughts on teenage mutant Ninja turtles, mutant mayhem. Well, Dave, I guess you could say my thoughts on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. It's best summed up in the form of a limerick. Really curious how you're going to fit the whole title in this one, Jeff. <laughs> it doesn't make anything worse to put turtles in the Spider-Verse. The animation style makes this version worthwhile, and it's also more fun and diverse. Nice. Nicely done, Jeff. I think this is... I I am I'd say the best version of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah, yeah. It's wow. very, very good. I would good. easily say that. Yeah, it's very fun, and it's also very different. They completely reinvent April O'Neil, which I thought was welcome and uh, done very interestingly. I, I loved her as a character in this film, and really have a, a unique take on the turtles and Splinter, like Splinter in this isn't the wise old um, ninja master that he has always been portrayed as. He's kind mm -hmm. of a, 
just trying to make it as a dad. He's a dad. You know? He's just trying to make it as a dad. It's not easy to be a dad. <laughs> he can use a date. You know, he can. I like I like the takes on these characters. I like the takes on the turtles because mm -hmm. they do a very interesting thing here that I've never seen, where the turtles become this unit that almost always in this movie are talking at the same time, talking over each other, mm -hmm. overlapping dialogues, commenting on things. D this sort of clump of chaos that it, it, it kind of gave me like it's always sunny in philadelphia vibes where like, yeah. every, everyone's yeah. like talking over each other and just riffing you know yeah yeah which is hard to do with animation uh and you don't see it very often and i thought was a really inspired notion it it drives home the teenagerness of the teenage mutant ninja turtles but also kind of gives them a, an identity as a unit that i've never seen before where they're they're this sort of complementary greater than the sum of its parts like mass of teenage energy and i just i really like that it's, it's such a cool take um I, I do think the byproduct of that is that they lose some of their individualism mm. uh and I, I don't think any one character particularly stands out they try to give a little distinction here and there about you know leo being the the leader and having an identity but but i don't think i don't think the movie really has time to dig into each of the turtles individual mm -hmm. arcs it becomes an arc for them as a unit as a as a group but it, i thought it, that yeah i just want to i, I want to uh, you know piggyback off that point is interestingly i think that um they use the turtles physicality as kind of a substitute for that yeah like when i've seen them in the cartoons they're all identical basically right well but the in original this... eastman and laird is actually identical yeah right 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 and in this one like i think Raphael is like significantly larger than the yeah. other yeah. ones he's a big so boy more brute force and then one of yeah. them i think donatello is like the smallest and like meekest one so anyway sorry to interrupt you were you were yeah. on a good run no, there, you're Jeff, right but i just they... i just wanted to like say like they use like the physicality to like substitute in for some of that character development. And Raph is still angry. Like Raph is still like sure, the yeah, guy yeah. who always has like his big rage out. So that that's way back to the first movie too. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, Jeff, go yeah. Ahead. Go ahead, yeah. You're right. Uh, it, 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 they are more physically distinct, design-wise distinct than they have been in the past. Because usually it's like their weapon and their color is the distinctive mm -hmm. factor, right? And their behavior. But here they are. They are actually very different. Standing in a in a group, they have different heights, different sizes. It is different silhouettes. They, you know, the, I think that is an interesting decision. But I thought it was cool that maybe subsequent films, if there are, are some, can delve into what makes each of them individual. But I thought this movie took an interesting tack because it it has them as a character, like the turtles as a character, April O'Neil as a character, and then these like ancillary side characters as their own character which i thought i was i did not expect that the, the sort mm -hmm. of other mutants that have been introduced over a period of time Lo in the love the m word the m word it always makes everything good including x-men uh just want to chime in here a sequel is confirmed and there's oh, a tv good. series coming too so as it should be everything That's is great. as it should be yes yeah and, and it feels it does feel like this feels like the batman begins of uh the the turtles you know Everything mm -hmm. is grounded. Everything is explained. We really given a, a, a kind of an origin story for a lot of the stuff we know to be true, i.e. their relationship with April O'Neil yep. and, you know, their, you know, coming out of the sewer and sort of deciding to be heroes. Like so much of this movie is about deciding to be a hero or not. Uh, and I thought it was great. Like I said, I saw it with my six-year-old. 
he absolutely loved it. He was all over it. I mean, some of the the very avant-garde style, the, the visual style, in, Davinger and I have both uh, name-checked mm-hmm. Spider-Verse, which I think this movie wouldn't exist without Spider-Verse. This movie yeah. runs because Spider-Verse walked, right? Because it also ran. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> the real and truth. Swang. Yeah. yeah. Swung. Swung, <laughs> swimmed. Um, but um it, it isn't exactly that style. It is mm-hmm. it's certainly inspired by it. It's but more it has watercolor. its own yeah. particular tweak on it. And I, I would describe it as being like, what if uh what if claymation had then like a colored pencil pass over it? You know, <laughs> it do, it looks almost clay and physical, but there's like a colored pencil chaotic thing that's going on. That's very cool. And nothing in the world is symmetrical, which I thought was really interesting. People's faces are kind of lumpy and misshapen, never the same on one side or the other. Uh, no, no building, no car, no vehicle. No, nothing is symmetrical left to right. And it makes for a very funky look that I thought really worked, but it can be pretty uh, intense and overwhelming. I think mm-hmm. I was worried about that for my six-year-old, but he grokked it and he was in, he loved it. He thought it was a, a blast. And I love that it could be a real PG experience that I felt comfortable bringing him to. And we could go to see together and I didn't have to worry about, you know, the F-bomb here or, or real gory violence there. Um, it, you know, I love that they're bringing the turtles back for kids and I got to share it with mine. That's wonderful. Uh, I, I want to comment a little bit more. That wasn't quite my take on the animation style. Honestly, it felt a lot to me like children's drawings. Um, like there's a lot of stuff that's literally just scribbled. Like I, yeah. I remember w- watching a character who has like chest hair and arm hair, and it's literally just like someone scribbled it. On, yeah. You know, someone just took a pencil and scribbled. It and, feels watercolory to me. Like that was the feeling I got for set from setting, from backgrounds and yeah, stuff. But yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, I don't agree with you. Like, just you know, we're all just describing our subjective experience about sure. it. But I, I don't feel watercolor. Like when I watch the first ten minutes of uh, into or uh, is it across Spider Verse on US? Yeah. Across the that one feels um, watercolor. That, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. watercolory Where it's like yeah. literally like water is coming mm-hmm. down from the top of the frame. I think crayon know. is probably yeah. a better fit. Crayon, some, yes, it does crayon. feel organic. That's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Crayon. That's yeah. I would describe it as crayon, like scribbling, but the scribbling is alive. Right. Mm-hmm. That's how I describe mm-hmm. it. It's like you scribble something, but it is alive. The observation about no symmetry, Jeff, is a very good one. Like a lot of things are are, are unsymmetrical. Also. Uh, one thing that I think Spider-Verse movies did really well, uh, and that this one I think also uh, sort of uses the same technique, is things in frame moving at different frame rates. I believe that is a thing that is also like where you feel like there's different layers to the frame and a character is moving at this frame rate, but the background is moving at this frame rate and so on. Uh, and it creates just a very interesting texture. Uh, I do think it's very specific and I can understand that people watch it and they're like overwhelmed and they don't mm-hmm. like it, you know? Uh, but for me, it worked. I- I'll say it worked a lot more in the theater when I could understand the wh- what they were trying to do as opposed to in the trailer. It didn't really work for me. I was like, I don't really dig yeah. this necessarily. Um, but I agree with a lot of what you guys have said. I think this movie is a lot of fun. It's a blast to watch. Um, my favorite thing about the movie is it clearly feels like the people who made the movie are pulling from the greatest movies that we've ever seen. So yes. yeah. uh, there are visual references to, as far as I could count, Saving Private Ryan, Heat, Old Boy, 
You know, these are all things like that have scenes that are referenced. Just great teenage- kids movies. Yeah, <laughs> just <laughs> some of the greatest movies. kids movies. But that's what I'm saying is like yeah. they're pulling that that visual language, you know, things that evoke the scenes from those movies and putting them into this film. And uh, th- that makes it a delight for cinephiles. You know, you're watching this movie, you're like, oh, wow, they're they're cribbing from some of the greatest of all time. Yeah. And it's a delight. I also think, yeah, the way they handle the turtles, you've already said the the... Uh, this is one of the few times where I felt like the turtles are voiced by teenagers. Yep. You know, I remember growing up watching the cartoon and it's like, oh, those are all like full blown adults. Like they look like they full look blown huge. adults, Ninja Turtles. <laughs> right. They look like they're huge. They're like adult height. Yeah. They, they sound like they're voiced by adults. And so I've always thought of them as like adults or young adults. And like, this is the first one where I'm like, Oh, they're actually like kids and they're trying to figure out things like kids do. And, uh, splinter being a kind of dad figure is really interesting dynamic. So I love yeah. their, their training too. It's not just splinter learning from his old master. It is, it's what we do. <laughs> they're just watching movies and learning <laughs> yeah. from the movies and like the, the, the cuts to actual, you know, live action footage and stuff. That was all really fun. Like to me, that that is very much like a wish fulfillment thing for kids too. Like you watch these movies and you're like, I want to do that. If I train enough, I can do that. Did you catch a frame of Jackie Chan in there? I thought oh, I, yeah. I thought I did. I thought that was I yeah, 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 yeah. I think it was like yeah. one of his earlier movies, like yeah. Drunken Master One or Snake yeah. in the Eagle's Shadow or something like that. So yeah, anyway. that was pretty fun. Anyway, um, all right. Uh, shall we get the spoilers for yeah. Mutant Mayhem? Here we go. Spoilers starting right now. I've thought up an ending for my book. It makes no damn sense. Compels me, though. I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. When I buy a new book, I always read the last page first. That way, in case I die before I finish, I know how it ends. You can't handle the truth! Inconceivable! I came here to tell you how it's going to begin. So, uh, you know, this movie has a similar ending to another animated film we've seen and discussed recently that I'm not Uh going to mention because it would arguably spoil that movie, Mm. but where basically um, the main characters are trying to convince the world to accept them. (laughs) And uh, I I do think this is a fairly like well-executed version of uh, of this plot. I thought Ice Cube was awesome. Like he's just an amazing villain in this movie. He's Um, fun, but also like sympathetic villain. And also like you don't deny that he's outright evil too. Like it's a good balance of things. I, the the movie that I think this this movie patterns itself after more than any other is the original Ghostbusters. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, that ending yeah. is Ghostbusters, That's dude. It's Ghostbusters, a, it's a, yeah. It's about New York City. It's like I love this town, ha <laughs> You know that whole ending of Ghostbusters, which is about fighting a giant thing in the heart of the city, trying to get the the people to accept them. Uh, you know the the. The way that New York as an entity is a character in Ghostbusters, it feels like it is in this film as well. So I gave me real big Ghostbusters vibes. Yeah, that's a good call. Yeah. Yeah. Um, something you pointed out to Devendra in our pre-show discussion is that Bebop and Rocksteady ostensibly are like not villains. In the, like they, not they start, they start was, out as villains. I was shocked. Because yeah. I'm, they're always just the henchmen. They're Shredder's yeah. henchmen or something. Like you just wait to see. Okay, what are they going to do with Bebop and Rocksteady? Literally every version of them I've ever seen in games or whatever, always just you know so-so villains. Here they're just, they're they're all family. They're all family. Hashtag family, and uh, they they end up being good bros, and I love that. That was I shocking. think that's going to change in the next movie. But oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Like things will change. But interesting yeah. that they didn't use Shredder. You know, I thought yes. that was kind of cool too. Leave it on the table. Yeah. Yeah. Although. 
apparently, like it was referenced in the post credits. Is that right? Oh, uh, I didn't. I guys, didn't yeah, stay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, none, of, none of us stayed for the post credits, but I think it we might have not been learned our lesson the, from movies. We, yeah. Indeed, indeed. Um, but uh, yeah, any other thoughts on on the what ending of this cast? movie? I mean, I just want to point out like a, a great cast, uh, including Seth Rogen, of course, but like John Cena doing fun work. I loved Ayo Edeberry here, and also a bit of Natasha Dimitrio. As uh, as wing nut, so like every every voice I can kind Rudolph. of recognize. Yeah. yeah, they're all there. Everyone's so good. Everything is good in this movie. The idea of reinventing April as a high school student, I thought was really interesting. Right, mm-hmm. that, that's something you referenced, Jeff. Right, and um, it does feel more. It basically, I would say, it makes more sense. Right, yeah, like in the context, hundred yeah. percent, like yeah. Yeah. that because uh, when you're when you're a teenager it's like oh there's a teenage mutant ninja turtle like that makes sense in my concept of the world you know as opposed to like april o'neill like a fully grown person associating with the turtles yeah. is like the turtles all have a crush on yeah what's well, yeah, a weird a thing weird. it was like it's like the turtles got their own lowest lane for some reason right mm-hmm. right and mm-hmm. i don't i it, it was always incongruous in some you know on some basic i mean level, it was it like, was in the original comics too so like yeah. that was she was always a character and i believe even in the originals like she wasn't she wasn't just a white reporter too like there was always some in- interesting diversity going on in the turtle so really fun to see that brought back yeah. i thought all that stuff about her puking on camera was so funny and yeah. and and you know good the, references the tiktoks everything like yeah yeah this movie re- knew re- what's up recreating the ui of the tiktok um i was a little bit bummed that we didn't get to see Baxter Stockman return, like return. I think he, because it was, it was his, his creation that was became the villain, right? Um, do we know mm-hmm. what happened to Baxter Stockman? Is he was he dead? Like, what did you guys? What was your guys' take on that? Good question. I, uh, my, open, my sense open, was an unknown, open question. Right? Yeah, uh, it was op- open question. Because if I recall correctly, in the cartoon, Baxter Stockman was like a recurring character that would like come right. back and yeah. like right. wreak his plan. So I, I feel like we we haven't seen the last of Baxter Stockman necessarily right um but my guess is he would look a lot like the uh superfly character in this mm. movie um because that's kind of what he looked like in the in the cartoon so mm-hmm. anyway um yeah my favorite you know i talked about some of the references that uh happened my favorite one was the heat reference there was um a heist of a machine part in this movie yeah and then like they they threw the spike strips down on the floor and then they clicked the stopwatch and they're like four yeah. minutes to police respond. That's like right out of heat. Uh, and so anyway, just wanted to give a shout out well, to that. Good moment, stuff. But, yeah, the yeah. action is all good too. And it shifts from different styles too. Like I do love, it's doing like very typical modern action for the turtle stuff. It's all very legible. You can see everything. But when Splinter enters the scene, I'm like, well, I got to make a fight scene for Jackie Chan. We make a Jackie Chan fight scene. And <laughs> it was, a, that's a lot of fun. I think it is filmed and edited and choreographed as though it is a Jackie Chan fight scene. And that yeah. is a delight. So. Using, using stuff nearby and being a little fun and being a little like comedic. Like, yeah, that's, I loved it. Those are all things kids it lost on the kids, but we know, we know right. what's up. All right, folks. Well, at the end of the day, it is really impressive that Jeff Rowe made a movie. And with all that said, let's talk about another movie, Meg 2, The Trench. Jonas, we need your help. We're detecting increased aquatic activity 25,000 feet deep in the trench. It's an ancient ecosystem untouched by man. Whatever is down there is trying to make its way to the surface. This is a bad idea. 
just a little bit. Welcome to the Filmcast review of Meg 2, The Trench. According to IMDb, the plot is as follows. A research team encounters multiple threats while exploring the depths of the ocean, including a malevolent mining operation. This is the second movie in the Meg franchise. It's directed by Ben Wheatley, who heretofore what? is primarily known for making small indie films. Psychological small indie mindfucks. Yeah, like Kill List and uh, what, uh, Skyrise? Yeah. I really high rise. I really rise. loved his uh, action movie Free Fire. I thought that was a blast. That was fun. Had a, had we, a lot of fun we all loved. That. I own that yeah. actually on Blu-ray. Wow. Yeah. It's not something that's common for Jeff Kanata <laughs> no. movies. But uh, the the thing I want to mention as context for this movie is there was a time in the 2010s when every single movie that got released in theaters had Chinese characters in it. I don't know if you guys recall that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was because. Uh, Hollywood saw a lot of money to be made in China, uh, and chi- the China only allowed a certain number of American films to be released in China each year. Uh, but you could get around that rule if you were co-financed by a Chinese company, and so Meg, the Meg One, was co-financed by a Chinese company, and uh, then slowly that has gone away because China has, you know, allowed fewer and fewer films, and the. Uh, conforming to Chinese standards, like having certain content restrictions uh, has become onerous and the upside has become limited. And so we've seen less and less of that over time. Mm -hmm. But Meg 2 is one of those movies, co-financed by a Chinese company. Not only that, uh, but it has one of the biggest Chinese action stars uh, right now. His last five movies have made around $800 million. Um, His name is Wu Jing. And this is a movie that uh, is basically attempted to be made for an international audience. Like it's, it's made by multiple countries. Uh, it's made for, you know, countries all around the world. And it is one of the few areas of U S Chinese cooperation that exists today. And the I just one thing we can agree on is Jason Statham fighting giant sharks. Exactly. Yes. I, just think, I just think it's regardless of how good the movie is, which we're about to dive, <laughs> you know, get into, I think it's just notable. Uh, mm-hmm. Like it's culturally notable that this is one of those, like a, a relic of a different time period, but in which, you know, there is a lot of investment from different companies to making this a success around the world. So anyway, uh, some of my overall thoughts on Meg 2 from a financial standpoint. But Devinder Hardwar, you are the biggest cheerleader of the Meg on this podcast. Well, I am curious if Meg 2 The Trench lived up to your expectations. I think you guys got to put this all in context. First of all, I really like the first Meg, especially when I do remember when we reviewed it and we had reviewed Skyrise like very... Um, or it was a skyscraper. We reviewed that like very recently, like right before it. One was about a guy going all the way up to save his family. The other one was about a guy going all the way down to save his family or family types. And I really liked the Meg. And it just like really hit on a lot of things. Cause it's very, this is a giant, giant shark, giant shark, Jason Statham. He gave me everything I wanted. I think the context for the Meg too, is that it was announced that Ben Wheatley was directing this movie. And my brain could not process that fact. What could the director of The Kill List and uh, and uh, Free Fire, what would he do with a giant shark movie? Then we saw the first trailer, which we heard a bit about, uh, a bit before. I think that's a great trailer. That's a perfect trailer. Great use of Barracuda. Really sells the concept. <laughs> gives me giving you some free, like great shots of Jason Statham, like using his legs to stop being eaten by a giant shark. Like everything. And um, you know, the final movie not nearly as good as that trailer. But I will say, I don't, 
I don't think it's a terrible movie, but I think it's a it's maybe a misguided one and maybe one that was influenced by like a lot of different factors because the first half of the movie is a lot of like um, going underwater, trying to figure out uh, this this weird mining operation is happening. And then the second half of the movie is giant shark stuff. And I feel like you could have just cut half an hour out of this movie. Just give me the giant shark stuff, which I think is a lot of fun. And Ben Wheatley has a lot of fun with that in the last act. And this would have been a better movie. But I think right now it is like part a slog and part like then we get to the fun time. So, yeah, I didn't hate it. But, you know, there's clearly a missed opportunity to make like a tighter giant shark movie here. Jeff Kanata, Meg to the Trench currently has a 28% on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm. Man, do you think it deserves this rating? What do you think of Meg 2? I guess you could say my thoughts on the Meg 2 at the Trench are best summed up in the form of a limerick. I'm not proud of this one. (laughs) (laughs) You also, that's Ben Wheatley's statement on this movie. Yeah, yeah, indeed. indeed. You get much more than an eighth in before there's anything to put your faith in. Because my benchmark is the big trench shark, not how they use Jason Statham. I was waiting for that rhyme. Wow. Waiting for the rhyme. Yes. Not, not the wor- not not your worst, Jeff. Not your worst. <laughs> waiting Lamar. for that drop. Yeah. <laughs> uh I agree a lot with what Devendra said. I don't know. Is it a terrible movie? I've kind seen of. Wor- I've seen so many worse it, movies than this. There's definitely yeah. worse movies. There's definitely worse movies. It there are so many baffling decisions in this movie, and I want to get into so many of them in spoilers, specific questions that make no sense to me whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, on a structural level, exactly what Devendra said, the first half of this movie, it, it, these are two completely different movies that are smushed together. And the they first have no relation movie, to each other either. It's very hilarious. little relationship to each <laughs> other. One of them, the second one, is the movie that I signed up to see. Yes. The first one is this self-serious, humorless slog that has very little to do with sharks (laughs) you know it's like this weird eco-terrorism movie i guess it's like Uh, an aliens movie almost it's like a space movie because it involves suits and ships and stuff yeah it is so weird and then like the movie wakes up and goes oh right we're this goofy giant shark movie there's a sign on the wall that says giant shark gotta get back to the we really should get to that goofy fun wacky stuff that people want to see so maybe we should make that happen now. Uh, and and uh, and then it kicks into a gear and it's like, for me, it was too little too late. Mm. But I, I finally was like, oh, here's, here's the not taking itself too seriously. Let's put Statham on a jet ski. You know, like that's, that's what we, uh, that's what yeah. I signed up for. Creative I, camera work. Good, like decent action. Yeah. Yeah, I had fun. But again, some very specific things that I do not understand. We'll get to in spoilers, but yes, um, I had fun with the first Meg. I liked it way more than I thought I would. This is not anywhere near as good a, a, an experience, a fun experience. It's just, it's so weird. It, it, it like, it feels like it needs to do all this heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. It does not need to do that. Are there are setups that pay off in the in the most limp lifeless boring way it, it, it's what's what are you even doing meg to the trench 
Yeah. Why is it about the trench? It shouldn't be about the trench. It's about rare earth minerals, everybody. Get rid of the trench. Uh, um, anyway, uh, yeah. it's not good. It's not worth seeing. I think the first Meg is gen genuinely worth seeing. This is not. Mm -hmm. It did make me wonder why is Jason, has Jason Statham been in a space movie yet? Put Jason Statham in space. I want to see that ass being kicked. I guess, well, I guess so, so spoken yeah. like someone who hasn't seen that Fast and Furious movie where they. Uh, <laughs> well, he was he in space, space sir. <laughs> was he there? No, that's a fair point. He did not yeah. go to space. He did not. That's, go to space. that's true. I mean, yeah, people did go to space in that movie. Okay, I, I'm gonna say uh, this whole Ocean Gate thing, you know, with the Titanic submersible and everything like that. Uh, as a result of that whole thing, I've done a lot of reading about <laughs> underwater submersibles, and now my brain is You've kind done of a lot like, of research. Is yeah. kind of that asshole who like. Shows up at the screening, uh, and now starts, it is now, <laughs> <laughs> and starts talking about all the stuff that ha like doesn't make any sense in the movie. I mean, yeah. um, you you don't need to do that research to be like, why is this a manned ship going to the trench? We don't send manned ships to other planets, you know. Like, yeah. Well, just like first of all, the shape. First of all, the the water pressure. Under you know, okay, well, we'll you know, talk about that. We'll yeah, talk, talk about let's that. Let's talk because yeah. there's some plot spoilery things we should talk about. Okay. <laughs> Um, here's my thoughts. I think this movie is getting a bad rap. I think <laughs> I agree. Uh, I Low think, score. Yes. I think critics smell Terrible. blood in the water, as it were, and they're just chum, like going. Chum, at, yes. They're going after it, and I think the movie is a perfectly okay action movie. Mm -hmm. There's enough action scenes in this movie that are like pretty cool, pretty inventive, uh, decently enough done that I think you yeah. will get what you're looking for. Even in the first half, they do kind of a riff on a scene from Sunshine. I'm like, that's cool. Yeah, there's I, some I cool, like that. I, I think yeah. there's, there's multiple cool action scenes. Um, so yeah, but is it <laughs> is it a good movie? No, you know, is it a movie? What is a good movie? You know, <laughs> what is what is even a movie? You know, yes. Um, but yeah, better is it or good, worse than Hidden Strike? <laughs> is it better or worse than Hidden Strike? I think it actually looks better than Hidden Strike. Like, there's a few points where the CG in this movie looks dodgy, but Hidden Strike is like on Netflix is eighty percent bad CG. You know, or there's tons of bad CG. Whereas Meg Two is like. The occasional bad CG, you mm -hmm. know, that's kind of, or the occasional rough uh, scene that looks very bad. I, I actually also think that this movie was kind of close to being a good movie. Yes. Um, if yes. it had spent a little bit more time developing these characters, maybe Jeff, if it basically like if it had made a few tweaks here and there, develop the characters a little bit more. Um, also, uh, Jeff, if it had maybe understood what it was more like and it had yeah. like, if the whole movie had been the second half of the movie, like that might've yes. been interesting. Yes. Right. You know, honestly just cut out some of the first part of the movie and you have a better movie. Like that's it. You don't even need to add anything. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, but yeah. Anyway, Dude, I mean, I, I want to say something, but I should save it for sake. <laughs> All right. So let, let, let's just, so overall, you know, it, it sounds like none of us hated the movie, but none of us thought it was particularly good. And we have much more to discuss uh, in the spoilers. So let's do that mm -hmm. starting right now. I thought up an ending for my book. It makes no damn sense. Compels me, though. I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. When I buy a new book, I always read the last page first. That way, in case I die before I finish, I know how it ends. You can't handle the truth! Inconceivable! I came here to tell you how it's going to begin. All right, Jeff Kanata, you had some, some big issues with this movie. I did. <laughs> I mean, this, this movie, how much better would it have been if it was called Meg 2, 
Fun Island. <laughs> Come on. That's a better movie. You're going to want to see Fun Island. Better title, better movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so many things that I do not get <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. The, we spent so much time establishing the clicker for the Meg, for his special Meg, which has no payoff whatsoever. The payoff is the epilogue, the like, after the crisis has been averted, he's going to sit in the water and see if the clicker works one last time. There's no point at which the clicker helps them. You spend so much setup yep. time setting up the clicker. That's it's just a, a Jing. That's a, a scene for Wu Jing. That's what it is. Okay. Well, also, also, yeah. it, it, how much you of a know, badass? They're, they're, the the yeah. Meg is about to eat him, and yeah. then he diverts it, so it does help him out. At the end? Um, yeah, at the end. There, he, no, but, he, no, but but that is after the crisis has already been... We are, that correct. is the epilogue. That is the, uh, there's yeah. no... We have, we have solved the problem. And now he's just going to sit there and see if the clicker works again. It's literally... Repla it's yeah, yeah. a completely flaccid Bad construction. Payoff. Yeah. Anyway, okay. The, <laughs> the, the weirdest thing about this movie is that it's not about the Meg. It's it, it's about a, uh, a squid that is not established in any way that just appears. Not really about the Worse squid. Than that, just there. Worse than that. What? Where did those dog monsters come from? Dog dinosaurs. They're what? under their trench where, dinosaurs. What, in what universe? Like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so much of the final act is people on Fun Island dealing with the dog monsters. Yes. But there is no connection between the dog monsters and anything else in the world. Well, they're, clearly, they're... Jeff, they came from the thermocline, which for the purposes <laughs> of this movie is basically a, a different dimension, you know? But so it's the, a, the, we don't see animals them. are down there. Yeah. The, we, we, yeah. the only way that they are sourced in this movie at all is in the, the little... Um, prelude that we see where we see 65 million years ago a t-rex gets eaten by the shark no they're the creatures that are like picking them off as they're getting to the base they're those it's those creatures right I but believe. so we built yeah. fun island on an island that has those creatures <laughs> no they came <laughs> up from the thermocline with the megs the, the thermocline was breached you see yes and then and then Wait, the things so came did up. i miss a moment where they no, literally no, but you're, you're right you're right, you're right. That they don't explain that yes <laughs> there's no we connection they came up. The we movie makes they came up yeah, yeah, between yeah. a giant shark and a giant squid and then land mammals i think the idea is that the thermocline has perilous dangers within Prehistoric monster is not yes. possibly prepared for, and once it's breached, it unleashes multiple megs. The thermocline is under octopus. the water, right? Yes. Yes. The, those Bottom those the dog yes. creatures are aquatic. Yes. They were there. Yes. They were there. They were the they were, things. They were under them. at the underwater base. Yeah. yeah. Now here's the thing: is uh, you know <laughs> they're, they're di Think of them more like dinosaurs. I think Jeff. your like complaint they, has. They were I think, I think yes. your complaint has a lot of merit, Jeff. Okay? Yes. Thank because, you. Because you're right that it doesn't. The movie it, it, doesn't it's explain such a it. weird. How do they know how to walk on land? Shouldn't their bones? Shouldn't they? Yeah, shouldn't it be hard. It makes for them? no yeah. damn sense whatsoever. <laughs> and we're in like a different movie all of a sudden, where it's like you're we're, in Jurassic Park. You're we're in Jurassic, Jurassic Park. It's yeah. Jurassic Park. It, it is literally it has the whole squid sequence is fun and go goofy fun. But I'm like, in, at what point did this movie decide 
that the squid was a thing. There's no point at which the squid becomes a thing. It just it just happens. There's you no know, Jeff. When you give me giant shark, I'm like, we're back for a sequel. I'm gonna need more than a giant. Then shark. make the movie about how there's also a giant squid. And like make yeah, the movie yeah. about the peril that we encounter at the end. It's never, the, this movie spends so much time mm-hmm. establishing the bad humans that are mining the this, this sea minerals at the bottom for the, so we can all put them in our phones. In our phones, yeah. But like, and then at the, and then it just goes, you know what? It's, we're not really about that. We're not going to discuss that ever, you know. That's not um, what this movie is about. I, d- at I all. do like the and way there the are movie characters, huge characters, yeah. major characters that literally do nothing for an hour of this movie, and then are vital at the, like completely. Yes, take center stage at the end of the. It's such a weird. It is feels like two completely different movies. It does. It does that don't have any relationship to each other. And one of them is actually fun. And the other one is, I've been there. I've seen it. I've done it. It's, it's not interesting at all. And then there's like a whole sequence where Jason Statham does an action sequence to be an eco-terrorist that has no relevance to anything at all. Well, no, he, uh, they, they are stopping bad people doing stuff in the ocean, right? So he, he is the, the most useful eco-climate activist ever. Um, it's, it's weird. There's a lot of things that don't go anywhere. I want to say giant squid. They hint that like they they are setting that up early on. I was like, there's a giant squid down here. Can't wait to see that. That'll be fun. <laughs> and I don't know about you guys. Uh, you probably did not see this movie in 3D, but uh, my screening ended up being in 3D. Mm. And this was a pretty fun 3D movie because they, they certainly like lean into things jumping out at you at certain points. And like the tech was like fine enough. I hear your complaints, Jeff, but, uh, you know, giant squid. Giant squid is cool. That's all. I guess. And Giant, Giant Squid, squid that, that really yeah. desire. I don't know. I'll, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll shut up now. I just right, thought that so, so, yeah, we didn't make any sense at all. Let's talk about some of the, the fun things about the movie. I actually thought the whole sequence that takes place, uh, all, all the first act stuff I thought was pretty cool. The, the yeah. underwater dodging the explosions and all that stuff. And then needing to travel on the ocean floor, which makes no sense, um, all the way to the base. Like all that stuff was good. I thought it was actually. Those suits must be very strong. Yeah, to, to pretty, like pretty well done. Yeah. And then, and as we described it, Jeff, like the second half is like pretty fun. It's pretty, reminds me of like Piranha, the, the Alex Aja movie, you mm-hmm. know, like yeah. it, it, there is like a lot of fun campy stuff there. So why, like, so why were they still funding them to go down and, and explore the trench? They needed the tech to, but, to, so, but why, to why stuff. were they cool with them going on an expedition if they didn't want anyone to find the thing that they built down there? A lot of good questions. A lot of good questions going on here, Jeff. Like, first of all, <laughs> why, why are there even manned missions to this area when robots could do the work? You know, like yeah, why put human all, lives at risk for any of this? So, the only yeah. thing we want is for them to not find the station we built down there. Yeah. Let's fund an expedition where they go right down there. doesn't make any so, sense to me. As I mentioned in the pre-spoiler section, the thing that really bothered me is like, you there's a reason we don't go down there in general. Yeah. It's because yeah. the the amount of pressure is too yeah. high. Um, you need a very specific s- submersible to be able to survive. Usually, a steel ball, um, yeah. like not some oblong shape thing. That's the one that spaceship. got destroyed. That's the yeah. one that got destroyed in the Ocean Gate. It's like, it's like literally that shape is like, mm-hmm. and you you know, there's no room to move around. It's like anyway, and then. Um, there's no radio waves. Radio waves can't really travel very well in, underwater. So um, the whole time I'm like, how are they communicating? That's true. Um, and then the pressure will crush a person. And it was hilarious 
because there is a scene in this movie <laughs> that is like from Event Horizon. I don't know if you guys saw the movie Event Horizon. Where yes. sure. I'm thinking scene... more Sunshine because that, that is right out of there too. But yeah. Well, in Event Horizon, there's a scene where basically like a character yes. needs to go through uh, space. Needs yeah. to go through space. He's yes. in a space station. He needs to like jump through the vacuum of space. Yeah. And it's like, okay, you need to like exhale, like all exhale all your gases because otherwise they're going to be ripped out of you. You know, like, <laughs> and he's exhaling. He's and you know. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that scene didn't make that much sense, um, but it made way more sense than whatever the hell is going on in this movie. Listen, you just got to <laughs> push the air out of your, your sinuses. No- nasal yeah, cavity. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. He's, like, he's like, he's got to accept. And then he starts like bleeding from his nose. And this woman is like explaining the science of this to the, <laughs> yeah. the guy's daughter. And he's like, yeah, he's he's getting all the gases out of his mouth so that he's not crushed. And it's like, he would already be crushed. He's at the <laughs> bottom of the ocean. <laughs> okay, sorry. Uh, no, it's Rand- great. Rant over. I won't. That say is the point where that. I realized this movie was like, just like, yeah, it, it's treating it like a space movie. Logic be damned. So I, yeah. I'm so sick of the little kid that stows away on the, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. how bad at expeditioning do you have to be to not notice the little kid on the expedition? You know, until know. you're it's like true. halfway through the expedition. But yeah. Yes, it's true. Um, These things are you, very you, you, small. These submersibles. You're not going to have a little kid's space. You know. You weren't, ex- you weren't deeply moved by Jason Statham's quest to become a better father, Jeff. <laughs> no, he's a I, he's I, a sweet I, character in this in these movies, at least. I yeah. do think the movie does lose a little bit in the in in um, from Meg One. Like Meg One, the, uh, Jason Statham had a uh, romantic interest mm-hmm. who dies off screen in the time between Meg One and Meg Two, and that actually I thought they actually had decent chemistry, and that yep. actually is a decent part of the first film. That's all gone in this movie. And, you know, this is a decent, you know, first movie for Wu Jing as a, as an action star. But, you know, he's only okay in this movie, I thought. Like, he didn't have that much to do. He didn't have do. anything to do. Like, he, he just got to be kind of a hapless. It's very comedic at times. Like, he gets to have a lot of comedy scenes, but not much direct action. He's a big action star. I, I think I think people, like, don't understand how big of a deal he is. He yeah, is in... Yeah. He directed and starred in Wolf Warrior 1 and 2. Um, he starred in Wandering Earth uh, and also uh, the Battle of Lake. What is it? Uh, the Battle at Lake Changjin. These are massive movies in China. They gross hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and we have seen people successfully make the leap from China to the U.S., uh, Jackie Chan being the biggest one. But I, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't know that people are going to be clamoring for more Wu Jing after this one, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. I thought Jeff, he was pretty charming. What did you think of Wu Jing? He's kind of, he's almost like a co-lead in this movie. Yeah, what'd I think you, he's pretty charming, he is, yeah. actually. Um, and uh, I, all the stuff that he gets to do in the third act, he doesn't have shit to do in the first act. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. uh, he, it, you know, he he has a lot of fun in the third act. And he's they pair him off with a, a different character altogether. And, you know, he's having more fun. That whole sequence with uh, the helicopter, trying to take the helicopter off. Uh, or take off with the helicopter. I yeah, thought that was, was oh, fun. My, my favorite moment in the final action sequence was when two of the characters are like running away from the enemy and they finally reach safety and it is, they've reached the building where the other people are being held hostage. Yeah, like, that was funny. Fun. That was a That's great fun. moment. I was yeah. like, oh, I haven't really seen it, anything like that. So yeah. there's, a, there's a handful there's, there's of nice... Stuff. The yeah, revelation... The idea, of, though, that uh, you'd stick mm-hmm. a, a gas... Uh, nozzle in your helicopter and it would, would not come out. It would hold the helicopter down rather than... Mm-hmm. Yeah, you yeah. know, let's think. The reveal that DJ uh, now knows how to fight and swim. Uh, I think 
it's very funny if you remember the mythos of the first movie like it's yeah there's there's fun stuff there uh my man cliff curtis uh give this guy a ship to captain basically like he he is just always there love seeing him like it's a lot of people i, I, I just remember, enjoy seeing i yeah. remember um uh listening to about 50 commentaries for mission impossible fallout from chris mm-hmm. mcquarrie and he was saying how when they were watching fallout and they were saying like oh people aren't invested in the crew you know people aren't yeah. invested in benji and all the people being together benji and luther and and ethan being together so they wrote up this whole opening sequence where they get the plutonium from this suspicious buyer and um and i do think that that does its job it's like to reintroduce you to the crew and Mm -hmm. i actually think this movie is missing that like i think it's like hey here's a reminder of who the people from the first movie are here's what their relationship is nope we got to forget about any of that they don't do any of that they just go straight to like we got to get to the action scene and unfortunately i think the movie suffers because of it so Mm -hmm. anyway all that said all that said at the end of the day it is impressive that ben wheatley made a movie I still don't understand how Ben Wheatley made this movie, but here we are. Yeah. Ben Wheatley's Meg 2. All right. Well, folks, that's going to bring us into the, uh, this week's episode. Should have been called Meg's, by the way. But yeah. Meg's. Yeah. Yes. You can find more episodes of this podcast at thefilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Our theme song comes courtesy of Tim McCune from The Midnight. Our spoiler bumper and weekly plugs music comes from Noah Ross. This episode was edited by me, David Chen, with video assistance provided by Kurt Mega and John Barry. Uh, next week on the podcast, next week on the podcast, it's going to be blue. Oh, no, no. It's going to be talk to me. I almost messed that up. It's going to be talk to me. <laughs> new horror movie out, uh, from a 24. I am really looking forward to talking about it. It's a uh, kind of a sleeper hit this summer doing really well. So check it out. And if you want to support this podcast, get ad free episodes, exclusive after our patreon.com slash film podcast is how you can do that. Thanks to everyone at Patreon who makes the show possible. But yeah, um, lots more to cover this summer right here on the Filmcast. We hope you'll stick with us. We hope you'll consider becoming a patron. And if you're not, we hope you consider sharing our work. It really does help us out. Until next week, we'll see you later. Goodbye. Goodbye.